The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. So my pal Matt Staggs, he sends me this book. And he's like, dude, you got to read this book. This book is fucked up. You're going to love it. Because he knows I love Stephen King and that, you know, that, that sort of twisted genre. So he sends me this book right here. It's in, this, well, it's in my bag here somewhere. Uh, he sends me your book, and uh, I enjoy the fucking shit out of it. Thanks. I am. I want. I want to pull it out because I'm. It's so beat up and dog-eared. <laughs> proves <laughs> that's that nothing I've looks better. Oh, there we the go. The troop. And uh, I guess I'm about. What am I about? Two hundred plus pages into it, um, it's really getting juicy. Mm. I re- I'm I'm really enjoying it, man. Good. It's really good. 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 And Thank it's, you. It's really fun, and it's, you know, it's. Along the lines of like Stand By Me or one of those classic old Stephen King books, you know, like The Stand or or Pet Cemetery, where it's just twisted and dark and there's psychological shit going on and there's horrific things happening, <laughs> there's monsters and it's really fucking cool, man. And um, when he sent it to me, he told me that Nick Cutter wasn't your real name. And I was like, well, what's... What's that, the deal there? Yeah, what is what's the deal there? Well, um, you know, I think the 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 most concerning thing to me would be is that anyone because I mean I grew up like you, like Stephen King is my idol. Steve, there's no nobody I've read more than Stephen King, and beyond that, like I grew up as a horror reader. I mean, I I've read everything now. I you mean you sort of diversify, but I wouldn't even say diversify because that's sort of like I love the horror genre. <clears throat> so like Clyde Barker, obviously mm. Stephen King, Peter Straub, Robert R. McCammon. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. That was sort of who I cut my teeth on. So um, so really my agent said, listen, you've been writing these things under your own name and they're kind of – I wouldn't even classify them as literary, but maybe they would be a little more to that side uh, rather than, than, than the horror genre. And um, he sort of felt like, listen, people aren't going to – People might be confused or, or people might, you know, let's have some separation, basically. And the best way to do this separation is just to give you a new name, put this, put this horror work. Because when I sent him the troupe, I mean, there's no way it's anything other than just like, I wanted to write like an 80s style hard fireball and sort of horror novel. Like not splitting any hairs, not trying to like make, make it meta-ironic or anything, just trying to go straight ahead the horror that I grew up you know, loving, you know, and try and sort of be an homage to, to, to those writers in that time. Um, so there's no doubt it was going to come out as clearly a horror novel. So he said, let's, let's just make up a, a pseudonym. And I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm new to this, but, you know, you know, you have an agent as well. And like, I mean, I trust my agent. I'm, I, I imagine in most cases you trust your agent, maybe not always. I don't trust them at all. Don't you? Okay. <laughs> no, they don't get to talk to me about they don't, <laughs> that type of thing. Yeah. yeah. I don't allow them. <laughs> Well, I think maybe looking back, you know, what we did is we settled on this pseudonym and then I quickly went went away, you know, trying to erase any sort of sentiment that I was ashamed of it. Because I think that's, I live in Toronto and I, I hang out with a lot of people in the, the horror genre, sort of genre writers. And their question was like, are you ashamed? I'm like, fuck no, that would be the, if, if that would be the worst thing for me, for people to think that, you know, because I'm as proud as what I've done as the troupe as any other writing I've ever done. So when you say literary, like what are your other books? I'm I'm not familiar with your other the books. The other books, well, I wrote a book called Rust and Bone, which is like uh, a book. Uh, um, is short, it fiction? Yeah, short stories. Um, 
uh, and then I wrote a book called The Fighter, not not the same uh, fighter, the Christian Bale movie, but um, and I wrote a book just recently called Cataract City, which is so it's sort of like I don't know. Um, I wouldn't say Chuck Palahniuk; he was an early influence, but sort of like macho, uh, like fighting, boxing, dog fighting, repossession. You know, those were sort of the things, really sort of manly endeavors that that they were. I was concerned about and interested in with those books, but they weren't. You know, they certainly weren't literary like uh, Alice Munro or something like that. I don't know who Alice Munro. Okay, is. she's a she's a a Canadian, uh, you know, a Canadian short story writer like uh, Salman Rushdie or you know uh, Philip Roth, those kind of like serious literary writers. All I know about Salman Rushdie is a bunch of Muslims really mad. Don't him. like that and then dude. Cat Stevens was on their side. And yeah, I was very disappointed. <laughs> And he was Very finally allowed to stick his head up after, I don't know, like they put a fatwa out on, yeah. on him, right? Is it so over? Is the fatwa I think over? They fu- I, think, I think the guy who, who put it out died. So I think the fatwa died with him. Or maybe uh. they carried it over. I, I don't really know how that works. But he is showing up at public functions, so I think he's less concerned about being killed. <sighs> Poor guy. Yeah, you think about like, man, of all the stuff. Could you imagine someone puts a fatwa on you for something that you say during a podcast? Well, it's or? pretty ridiculous. Yeah. I would yeah. find out who ever did it and I'd kill them. <laughs> <laughs> you can get to the them way. first before. Yeah, if yeah, you can yeah. just kill the guy and the fatwa ends, that's yeah, you're fucked. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're, they shouldn't be putting out too many fatwas because, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you. It's the day and age you can't hide behind a fatwa anymore. No, exactly. In today's internet, you know, they can find you, but I, I can find you too. You could publicly expose them. Yeah. for their fatwa shaming. <laughs> that's right. Um, so I, I don't, I'm not familiar with Salman Rushdie's work. I, I read a little bit of it and I found it quite boring. To me, honestly, yeah, I think. I think too. There's somewhat with literary writing. Like I had to, I had to read it because you went to school and did an English degree. So I feel like the, there's like medicine. Mm-hmm. It's like it's not necessarily. It's good for you. There's this sense of like you should be reading it because it's good for you and it'll make you a better person. But I'm sort of I'm past all that now. I just like to read what I like to read. And if that happens to be you know sort of crunchy literary fiction where it's like dense text, well, fine. But if it's if it's something like a really good horror novel or a thriller novel, I mean, I'm all over that too. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to fiction, whether it's a film or whether it's a book, I only want to be entertained. Totally. You're, you're not illuminating, elucidating. You're not enriching me with your no. fiction. You're just <laughs> not. I agree. But I went, you know, you go to school, right? And you have too much time on your hands, right? You, you wake up in the morning and what do you have to do? Maybe you go to a class for two hours a day. Um, and so I think people in that realm feel like they, because they have the time to like invest in like really crunchy mind sort of melting, you know, fiction mm-hmm. that really tests you. But, and you know, and then they sort of look down on someone who just wants to read like, like for example, I didn't mention at all in my first, when I, I did a, um, uh, my English degree, you don't talk about Stephen King. Because you get these funny? sort of looks like, Oh, him. Oh, well, yeah, I used to read him when I was 12. Yeah, he gets mocked. Yeah, he gets mocked. And I was like, you know, after a while, you're just like, wait a sec, fuck off. You know, like, I love Stephen King. I love a lot of writers that you guys seem to think are, uh, you know, base or below your esteem. And who are you in the first place? We're just sitting in some writing workshop. You haven't published a goddamn thing. Like, not to be an an asshole. I mean, I like some of these people that that I'm talking about, but like... You know, yeah, there was there was that certain that hierarchy, and uh, unless you're reading at this level, but it's like most of people who like to read have like 
a job that really occupies them and they get home at night maybe and they don't have all that much energy. They just want to read the, in, you know, for enjoyment, you know, and why, why look down on that? Yeah. And anytime you're <clears throat> concerned about image so much so that you're ignoring great works yeah. like Stephen King. Yeah, exactly. Stephen King wrote some really fun stuff. Absolutely. And, and really, and d- deeply psychologically thrilling mm-hmm. as well. Yep. Like you can't dismiss the stand. No. You just can't. Or you know, it, or, yeah, or it, yeah. Salem's Lot. And one yeah. thing that I noticed too, like trying to write a horror book is, I think it's really difficult to scare people in this day and age, right? Like it's, it's, and so you would probably, I don't know, maybe you can answer this a little bit in terms of like in, in comedy. Like I read Stephen King when I was 12 and I just read him. First of all, he's the writer that got boys to read of our generation, right. you know? I mean, there's nothing else other than maybe choose your own adventure books that I was reading back then until I sort of graduated to Stephen King. And, um, and so you first, you read it just cause you love Stephen King. And then second, you know, I went back as a writer myself and you, you sort of treat the book as like an engine, the way a mechanic treats an engine. You're trying to break it down and see what, what is working? How does this work? How does he scare you? And, um, that's where you realize his genius because it's like, you know, I'm working on like a model T Ford and he's got like this He's working on the DeLorean engine from Back to the Future. That's how much he's above, you know, a lot of us in terms of like he is he works at a level, I think, of like conjuring fear that is so difficult to to first of all, see how it works, break it down and then try and do it yourself. Um, and, and so when you have people like looking down on him f- for for that, I just don't think they've really interacted with his work as closely as I have, because first of all, if you're saying he sucks, I'm like. I can't even touch him in some ways. And so what are you saying about me? Well, I just think it's one of those things where it it becomes trendy to say he sucks. Yeah. It it puts you in this sort of elevated category of intellectual. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's horseshit because fiction, like when you start talking about monsters or vampires, you're automatically a fool or you're doing foolish work. Yes. Yeah. Whereas if you're talking about depression and suicide and, you know, abortion. You're serious. Stop. <laughs> I'm done with you. All right. I'd yeah. like it's when it comes to like fictional movies especially like if someone says, "Oh my god, it was an amazing movie. I cried my eyes out. It was so horrible." <laughs> not me. I'm not going to see your piece of shit where it, you make me cry. <laughs> I don't want to cry. I've like there's plenty of opportunity to cry. Mm. You want to want to cry? Watch a documentary on Rwanda, okay? Mm-hmm. Don't don't fucking cry because some fake asshole made some stupid movie where some people are pretending terrible things happen. Yeah, totally. you're not going to learn from that. You're just not. Mm-hmm. I, I like to be elevated by my fiction, or at least thrilled. Yeah, totally. I want to cry. No, no. I mean, and and I I completely agree. Um, and and so. And one another thing Stephen King does really well is is childhood. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's another writer, to my mind, really, who writes about childhood as as well as Stephen King captures it in like a book like it or or the or well the movie The Body that became Stand by Me. You know, he captures that time in a in a boy's life, especially that um, it's just remarkable. You know what I mean? And and uh, so so I think now too. I know Patton Oswalt did like a, I think it was I forget where he did it, but he did like a long article based on his admiration really for Stephen King. So I think now there's a renaissance. Finally, Stephen King has got to be close to seventy now, where people are finally like, okay, this guy's 
this guy's pretty good. Well, again, it's just one of those things. People love calling someone out or they love shaming someone. They love diminishing someone's work. Mm-hmm. They just they just enjoy it. Yeah. And it especially if it elevates them. Yes. Yeah. The, or the it's like a hipstery it. thing. It's yes. like, well, too many people like this. It can't be good mm-hmm. um, because too many people like it. And I, I have to like these sort of offbeat. Well, haven't you read the offbeat Peruvian poet? Uh, <laughs> no, I haven't. I mean, I'm sure he or she is awesome, maybe, but well, I'm not. Maybe gonna, not. Maybe not. Exactly. How many times <laughs> has someone tried to turn you onto a band that tell they tell you it's amazing and it's shit? Yeah, you got to go down to like a basement, you know, somewhere, and they'll be playing to like five people. Or it's just like, give you. They send you all the time. People send me like a YouTube clip, and it's dog <laughs> shit, dog shit music, and they're like, "This is amazing. This band. They're so nuanced." Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Mm. And if you don't, and sort of like if you don't get it, then you're out. Yeah, I guess that's sort of like your lapse in judgment or ability to really recognize how good this is, and that's what separates them from you. It's like, you're just not right. complex enough. No, Nick that's right. Cutter. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's AKA right. Craig Davidson. Yeah, yeah. I am lacking in some some serious way. You know, um, Stephen King. It's a, it's an interesting comparison that you said that Stephen King captures childhood really well because I think that's something you did really well in this book as 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 well. Thank you. Um, you you captured this uh, sort of Lord of the Flies type scenario. I don't want to give away too much of the script. Sure. But when things go awry uh, in the, in the beginning, you sort of see this social hierarchy that's going on, and you see shifts in this social hierarchy mm-hmm. based on the events that take place. And it's it's quite fascinating. Um, I really wish that you did it under your own name, and I hope that like Richard Bachman, the, the <laughs> Bachman. Cry- why did yeah. Stephen King do that? You why know did what? He go with Bachman. Yeah. Um, why he did it is because he was too prolific. Is that what it was? Yeah. His agent just said, "Listen, man. First of all, like I don't get credible? it, man, because he's probably got because he's still to this day he's still pumping out books at an enormous rate and big like slobber knocking books. He's yeah. not you know little tiny." Uh, so I think he probably writes like me on a good day. I can write like maybe 3000 words. That's if like the pistons are firing really well. And I try and write a thousand words every day. You know, that's sort of my, my limit, but he must write like 5,000 words a day consistently. And it's strong, strong stuff. So, so that was why Bachman came to be because his agent was like, listen, we just can't be flooding the market with Stephen King. We got to let's separate you out. Let's just put some of these stuff out under a different name. And then, you know, you still have your book out every year, which is still in an astronomical rate. So yeah, it was just, for him, it was a totally a sense of he just had too much to say. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And he eventually took those Bachman books and put them under Stephen King. Yeah. Yeah. It became like an open secret, really. You know, yeah. and you're right. Then he republished them under under his own name, basically. Was, yeah. um... What was the movie that they did where it was a... Uh, the Dark Half? Yes. Was yes. that a Bachman book? He, I'm not sure, but it was based on really... It was based... Richard Stark or George Stark uh-huh. was his his pseudonym, and that, that's when his pseudonym started started stalking him, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was definitely based on his experience having written under a pseudonym. Um, that might have been a Bachman book. Um, but that, that was another example of his his you know ability to sort of not just be so prolific but also be prolific under like some really established territory with as far as his work he was always a writer yes like how many times did he do a book about a writer a writer character yeah, yeah yeah i know i think it's cuz the the narrative is easier to write from that perspective you know even the voice that you find i think uh-huh. is it's like oh i'm a writer this voice is because i was reading rereading the body lately made into stand by me and that's again that's a writer character who's writing that and um 
you're right. He does have a lot of writer characters, which is something I've avoided up to this point. But you know, a lot he can of have the success. What's that? A lot of writers in Maine. Yeah, well, it's all. Yeah, you're right. It's almost all set in Maine. He sort of staked out that territory. Absolutely. <laughs> has. Have you ever been to Maine? Yeah, many I've, times. I've never. I used to live in New Brunswick, which is right, sort of right above Maine. But I never crossed the border and went down into Stephen King territory. It's stupid. I should have. There's some beautiful parts of Maine, but the there. I don't. Want, I want to be kind if I can. Mm. There's some of the dumbest human beings that live there on the face <laughs> well, of the nice. planet. Yeah, yeah. I'm being kind no, when I say that. No one that. will take disrespect at that. Yeah, yeah, if I was being unkind, I would call them a bunch of kid-fucking <laughs> weirdos that live in the woods. Um, not all of them. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's great parts of Maine. Bangor's mm-hmm. a great city. Yeah. Uh, po- the, the real problem with Maine is there's some areas where there's nothing. Like, oh. there's an area between Portland, Maine, and Bangor when you're driving up from Boston where you go... At least an hour without seeing anything, driving 70 miles an hour, and no radio. There's nothing. Oh, you can't even catch a station. You won't get anything. <sighs> that you, is you desolate. Just, you hit scan, and your fucking radio starts smoking. <laughs> it, just, it just keeps going. There's nothing. I mean, that I don't know how weird. it is now. There's no radio. There's no gas stations, man. There's just a straight shot of like 70 miles. Of just, of just of arid just road. pine trees or whatever. Mm, if you run out of gas, you're fucksville. Oh, man. And that if it's snowing weird. out, you're fucked. You're really Phil. fucked. Yeah. yeah. We used to do that drive all the time because we used to do gigs up in Bangor. Okay. And if you made fun of Maine, even at all, I mean, even slightly, the pitchforks were coming get out. up and scream at you. You'd call them maniacs if you called them maniacs. <laughs> right. Get up and get fucking nutty. <laughs> Maine. They, they love it. They love it up there. It's beautiful. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful country. And, you know, they have everything up there, deer and moose. Yeah, and it's like great that way. Sort of yeah. if you want to get back to nature, I feel like that's probably the place you might start. You want to be a survivalist. Yeah. Maine might be a place to get your crew started. It's probably one of the least populated states in the Union. Yeah, it's way it's way out there, you know, because yeah. for us too, New Brunswick is pretty, you know, you're well east at that point. But what's odd is Montreal is north yes. of Maine, yet completely cosmopolitan totally yeah yeah very I mean, very modern in every respect the people are fantastic and educated you've and been up nice. there for, you, I guess Love for MMA Montreal. events and comedy events as well both for both, for both. I've yeah, been going yeah. to Montreal since the early 90s probably since 1990 itself is when I first started going up mm. there. It's, I love Montreal. Yeah, well, I do too. We've never had an opportunity to to live there. I've lived a, a lot, uh, you know, well across the country. But of course, there's the francophone influence there, mm. which I don't. I don't know. I guess you going up there as an American, I don't know how much interaction you have with that necessarily. A lot. You know, yeah. do you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, of course. Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of great MMA fighters are are for, or at least a couple are yeah. francophone. GSP and Patrick Cote mm-hmm. and. Uh, Loiseau, David Loiseau, so, David Loiseau, yeah. Francis Carmon. There's um, yeah. that whole five. The the TriStar Gym yeah. from Montreal is one of the best MMA gyms in the world. Which so. I don't know how that happened, you know, because MMA. Like I used to live in Calgary, and that's actually another odd MMA hotbed. There's there's a lot there's a lot of interest. I don't know if mm-hmm. there's a lot of great fighters yet who have come out of Calgary, but there's a, quite a few. Are there good, now good fighters? Very good, good fighters. fighters coming up, and yeah. and I I did a, a magazine article on on one guy who. Um, you know who I just followed him to his first professional fight, actually, which was an interesting sort of thing to follow. And he actually he hurt himself really badly in that fight, and that was it. That was his career. Um, but but I know the gym that he was working out of had it was a. I mean, it was. I've I've rarely been and felt that level of like camaraderie, but also competition. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of 
in such a tight, small area. So, so um, that's yeah. how you build great fighters. You yeah, have to have I, those that two things. Pressure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know what it is about Canada and producing uh, mixed martial arts fighters, but also mixed martial arts fans. Yeah. I think there's more MMA fans per capita in Canada than anywhere. Yeah, you blow out the, uh, the Toronto, what is it, the Air Canada Centre. Mm-hmm. We sell that place out, I think. Yeah. And, um, they sold out the Rogers Centre, Yeah, too, the that, Rogers Centre, yeah. That gigantic, huge place that... Used to be, uh, used to have a different name, right? What was uh, it? Yeah, Skydome. Skydome. Yeah, 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 exactly. So that's and that's amazing. Sixty thousand people. Sixty thousand to what? And it was GSP's fight, I think. Yeah. Um, versus uh, Jake Shields. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, um, we are. We're a great uh, sporting supporting nation. You know, we just had the Raptors just got bounced out of the playoffs, like the basketball team, and. Uh, you know, selling out, and then they had like people, like twenty thousand fans clustered outside of the arena watching. Wow. So yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a great. It's a, and it's great that you guys in the UFC come up. And I think th- I think for a while there, it was mostly you guys were down in Las Vegas and mm-hmm. a few other places. But then you decided to come up uh, to Canada, and it's it's been good for you guys. Been great for us too. Well, Canada just has a love of all things manly. There's yes, a, we do have that. I think yeah, they're not embarrassed by it. No. Whereas there's a lot of embarrassment in America Is that so? about things manly. Yeah. They're, or like like a, push it away or like, oh, that's a little too testosterone-y kind mm-hmm. of a thing. Yeah, I have a friend who was talking about um, a, a sitcom that he was working on. And he was uh, talking about um, there's a woman that was uh, one of the leads mm-hmm. that was trying to uh, introduce. She was also one of the writers and she was trying to introduce these male characters that were like the type of guys that she likes. And they were like, oh, he's too, too, too jockey. He's too, oh, really? too much of a meathead. Like they didn't want anybody who was interested in other women other than the girl that they were with. They didn't want that dilemma. Yeah. They didn't want anyone who was dominant over the woman in the relationship. They didn't want anybody who was obsessed with their body or working out. They're like, they, those, those things, are like all verboten. We yeah, just can't go near those things. You can't have those things. You it's, can't. Have, and it was the writers themselves because they felt threatened by that those types of men. Oh. So they were rejecting those characters. Girls don't like that. Those guys, those <laughs> gr- they guys like are tweety, jerky. you know, yeah. guys who wear scarves and stuff. Well, she like was that. getting angry. She was like, "What are you saying? These this is what I like. Like yeah, you're telling yeah. me that the type of guys I like, women don't like these yeah, guys. Yeah. Like what? And whether you like them or not, that's that's kind of like a. That's character. an element of our, our society, too. Like, why purposely sort of ignore them and, oh, no, that wouldn't screen test well or we don't, we don't want to. It's embarrassing to yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I was thinking, too, about before coming here, like, you, your career has sort of had, I think you must have run up against that a lot. Because, like, I remember when Fear Factor came out, there was a sense, you know, there were these hyperbolic newspaper articles like, ah, society's collapsing you know it's fear factor like we're you know what i mean people are doing things that like why are we getting people to eat bugs or stuff and i thought i love that show you know what i mean and then the ufc comes along and it's the same kind of like uh who what was one of your politicians had the the human cock fight a Uh, bunch of them used right yeah and so you've been you've been situated along that that line i think and so you'd be i'd be sensitized to it if i were you at this point it's like come on screw off well, if I was doing things from a public relations standpoint, I've made nothing but poor choices. Right. If you looked at it that way. Yeah. Like when I was starting, first starting to work for the UFC, it was in 1997. And the people that was, I was on a sitcom, I was on news radio, the sitcom. That's right, yeah. People were talking to me like I was doing porn. Like, they're like, what the fuck are you doing? Gonna, like that, like they thought it was. You're going to ruin your career. Really? You're involved in cage fighting? Like, what's wrong with mm-hmm, you? Mm-hmm. 
And I was like, it's just, it's martial arts. They, mm-hmm. they, they, it takes place in a cage. It could take place in a high school gymnasium. Would that be okay with you? Yeah, would that make it more yeah. sanitized for would, you? If it was and... in a field, would that be all right? <laughs> right. Like, what yeah. difference does it make where it takes place? It's yeah. martial arts. But the, um, the rejection of things manly, I mean, it has its roots in some pretty disgusting behavior. You know, when you, you see like the Steubenville rape case and sure. all the, the yeah. you know, jocks conspired as long, a, along with people that worked at the school yeah. to hide. To sort of, yeah, cover that yeah. shit up. Yeah. And the, that kind of, you know, misogynistic, supported thinking, the group think mm-hmm. of, you know, fuck these bitches, you know, yeah. all the men together. But those are just weak humans. Mm-hmm. Those are pathetic humans. It has nothing to do it's with not representative masculinity. Of, yeah, no, I completely agree. But that's the thing. It was like masculinity gets tied into all the reprehensible aspects of, of male behavior mm-hmm. against women. Not just a celebration of things that men love. Mm-hmm. Men love certain things that don't harm other people. Like men love cars that are loud and fast. Yes. You know, men love a lot of things. Men love shooting guns. It doesn't mean they want to kill people. No. It's like there's something fun about shooting a gun. And if you bring that up and you say that, oh, I don't have guns. I don't own guns. Yeah, I that's don't not... believe in mm-hmm. guns. They need to take away all the guns. <laughs> I mean, I've had these conversations with people whenever there's a school shooting. They need to take away all the guns. Maybe they need to stop giving people these fucking drugs that make them psychotic. Mm. You ever think about You're that? You're talking the, over, the, the sort of the over-medication of some of these kids? And... 90% of all school shooters, 90 plus, are, are either on SSRIs or are recovering from SSRIs. They're in withdrawal from antidepressants. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the antidepressants cause that. Mm-hmm. But I do believe there's, without a doubt, an over-prescription of medication. Without a doubt. Mm-hmm. You go to a doctor, the doctor's not going to look at a holistic approach to your life and say, hey, you know, maybe you were raised by shitty human beings yeah. and maybe you need counseling for a decade. We'll just put this you... beta blocker and that'll all the bad thoughts will be walled off. Yeah, and well, not only that, all your inhibitions are going to be lessened. Your yeah. your ability to understand the consequences of your actions will be lessened. Your ability to be de- depressed and to feel terrible about bad actions has also been removed. There's yeah. a lot of things that happen when you put people on drugs that change your neurochemistry. Doesn't mean that those drugs are bad. You know, I, no. I get these fucking tweets from these people that can't understand a complex argument or a nuanced conversation. I have friends personally that have benefited greatly from antidepressants. Yeah. And I, I don't, I, it's not that I deny them or don't support them. I think there's definitely a place for them. But I think when you look at all these people that have killed mass groups of people and you find this one common denominator over and over and over again, to ignore that but concentrate entirely on the tool itself mm-hmm. is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Most human beings are absolutely incapable of walking into a school and shooting a bunch of children. Most human beings. What is it about some human beings that are capable? I don't know. Mm. But that's not being discussed. Gun control's being discussed. The the raising of children's not being discussed. It's gun control that's being discussed. I find that ridiculous. I really do. And I think that that it sort of gets lumped in with this rejection of of manliness this you know this uh, support of anything that's anti male or this denial of these base male instincts yeah. that don't necessarily have to be harmful to other people like competition yeah yeah i mean there's so much about i mean I, I, my career is in a way uh you know again my early stuff was all about about men doing men things which some of it is is silly and self-harming, but 
but also it's like something that I think built into our genome we need to express in, in a certain way. You know what I mean? So, but I know that a certain segment of, of readers or we just were like, they were turned off it immediately in the same way that, in the same way that the, these TV writers were just like, no. But they're just the wrong people for your stuff. No, that's all you it need is. to find, you know, you need to find a receptive audience. And, and the same, I think your career has been a lot of that is about, about finding the right. Uh, and, and also, I think also for both of us, it's about make, making people realize that like, I'm not a meathead. You're not a meathead. You know what I mean? There, but I feel like people think that. Like I'm, I they, they read this book and they assume that I'm, I am a meathead. Or right. Like you wrote I'm, a book called The Fighter. Yeah, and yeah. And so you're amateur boxing matches. Right, right. And and would be the same, same. I, th- I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but I don't know if you've had the same experiences yourself. And it's sort of like, um, you know, I wasn't raised that way. I, I don't, I don't consider myself a typical. And whatever, if you're a jock, that's fine. You know what I mean? Uh, not. You know, if you're a Steubenville type, you know, if you have that that's kind not of jock not even mentality. A jock. It's not, I wouldn't say that's yeah, a jock. It's like a, what would you call that? I'd say a bro, but I I don't think no, so. I think bros are more like. It's low, a rapist. Yeah, it's straight up a rapist. You're right. a piece of shit. Oh, yeah, you're a shitty yeah. human being. And most yeah. likely you have a bad relationship with your mother or your mm-hmm. sisters mm-hmm. or someone in your family who just did a terrible job of expressing to you the responsibility of being the physically stronger sex mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the, the one that is the penetrator, not the penetratee. Yeah. You know, this whole relationship between men and women, I think a huge part of it is how they're raised, how human beings are raised and what kind of a relationship would they have with their family. Yeah. I had a really good relationship with my mother. I'm Me really too. lucky yeah. in that respect. Like I've never had any hate towards women, but I have friends that genuinely hate don't women. like women. Oof. I mean, and not, that came from their from their upbringing, either because yeah. their father mm-hmm. maybe they had a divorce or something. Just the father bad, was like, "She's awful." You bad know, moms or, or bad moms, straight yeah. out. Yeah. Bad moms, bad relationships with women, and they just they just don't like women. I mean, I don't I don't have good friends that are like that, but yeah. I know yeah. people that will say, "Fucking cunts," they're all the same. Oh, They'll yeah. say shit like that around you, and you're like, "Come on." You're missing out. There's mm-hmm. a lot of great chicks out there. Yeah. Just like there's a lot of dudes that I would, I would, if I, there's some people that if I was alone with them in the woods, I would seriously think about killing them Getting if I get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. If, yeah. If you were around, yeah. If you were around, here's a perfect example. If you were around that fucking, not Joe Paterno, who was the other guy? The guy that raped Sandusky. the Sandusky. Oh, Sandusky, right. If I was around, yeah. if I was in the woods, and it was just me and Sandusky. And there's I sort just, of a grave, maybe just sitting there. There's no one around. And I look to the left, and there's just miles and miles of woods. Fuck yeah, I'd kill that guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If I knew he raped kids, 100% I'd kill him if I could get away with it. Yeah. Why? Because I don't believe that all lives are created equal. Hmm. I don't. I think that there's... There's a yin and a yang to the world. There's good and bad. There's positive and negative. There's give and take. And you got to trim weeds. Right. You got to you got to shoot dogs that have rabies. You know, there's a lot of things that happen in this world that are uncomfortable, that people don't like. They're they're unfortunate, but that they need to be done. Yeah. And when you find some guy who likes to rape children, you should remove him from, from the earth. Yeah. Yeah, this is a mess. You can't clean this up. No, and I feel like it's—I I don't know—I'm probably getting out of my depth here in terms of what my real understanding of it. But I feel like it's such a built, like it's something deep in your DNA, Helix, in your genome. Like you're not going to root it out. Right. You know what I mean? The best you can do is hope that you don't pr- aren't in a situation or you're 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 somehow away from the source of what your your you know issue is basically. But I mean, if you're out in society, I mean, 
of course, you're going to be sort of up against it. I don't, I don't think you get cured from something like that. I mean, I don't, I, again, I don't know for sure, but I feel like, yeah. Yeah, I, well, I think there may be a time in the future where we can understand and get to the root of these behaviors yeah, and perhaps yeah. access whatever it is that's wrong in a person's mind that makes them either have a desire to victimize children or have the ability to victimize mm. children and not feel remorse for it or yeah. be attracted to it. Do you, as a writer, um, do you, because as a comic, I watch a lot of things that I don't agree with. Hmm. And I will... You mean other comedians doing things or just... No, 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 no. Like, I watch religious programs. Uh, okay, yeah. I watch uh, conservative right-wing yeah. propaganda shows. Sure. And, and I... just be seething and every muscle tensed when you're watching no, it sometimes? No, no. Oh, no, just easy. I try to get empty when I, <laughs> when I do those things because I, I don't want to get angry. Um, I, what I want to do is try to find the patterns in their thinking and mm -hmm. try... And you see a lot of commonality in in these sort of groupthink mindsets, whether it's uh, Republicans or I see it in feminists a lot. Mm -hmm. I see it in male feminists. I see it in um, these people like they they choose sides, and then there's a massive amount of confirmation bias. And you see it, you know, you see it both ways. But as a writer, mm -hmm. do do you like to study? like certain mindsets or certain people that are just completely alien to your way of thinking to try to grab pieces of the way they interact. Sort of jump into their head and see yeah. if you could trace a narrative through yeah. through their eyes. I, I have tried that. I think I think that's, you know, I know writers and I certainly know comedians who, I mean, it's sort of like the the... the the rage-based comedian, like, you really want to sort of confront these things, you know, and, like, really go on a good harangue about mm -hmm. it. And I think, I think a really, it's sometimes not even funny with, with a comedian, but it's really true and it's really, like, honest and it's really, you're actually getting more of a social commentary at that point. Like Hicks. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. you're getting a really strong, distilled, powerful medicine, you know? Um, and there's some writers who sort of work in this satirist vein, I guess, who sort of do the same thing, you know, over the length of a book. Um, so I've tried that. Um, I've never found as much success with it, at least not yet, you know? Because um, the same thing, of course, I, uh, we have a strong conservative, you know, base. You know, conservative radio always gets, gets on my nerves. It's funny because we have, right now we have Rob Ford, our, our mayor in Toronto, who's doing all sorts of hilarious things. He is in rehab now. <laughs> uh, you know, and he's like, he's no end of, of fun. You know, I was sitting at the bar yesterday when I, I got in and I was talking to somebody. He's like a, a defense contractor, actually. And he was like, he, you know, he sounds like, he seems like a pretty good guy. At least he's straight out honest. I'm like, he is a, he was a guy you could probably go out and feel like he'd have a beer with. And I don't think he'd look down at you for sure. But um, he's also the mayor of our city. And he's, he's a, I mean, he's a bit of a goof and he's a bit of a bully, I find as well. But it's funny to listen to the conservative pundits because they've got to turn themselves into paroxysms and back twists to try and defend his behavior basically and it gets more and more difficult to kind of defend the behavior of a man who keeps doing more and more interesting kind of uh who's trying to defend him well <laughs> really once you've planted your well conservatives i feel like i am more liberal so quite liberal uh so once the, i think once a conservative or a liberal but once you plant your stick in the dirt you just gotta keep. You gotta keep holding on to that stick, even though the wind is blowing That's you so like stupid. straight back. Yeah. So and one stupid. of the one of them was like, 
Well, I mean, you know, he's getting he's getting videotaped all the time by you'd think he'd be hanging around, you know, I can't believe his friends are videotaping. It's like he's hanging around with drug dealers. <laughs> you can't really expect <laughs> a drug dealer not to do something that may or may not profit them in some way. So anyways, but you know, and of course, you know, the one talking head says that and the other one, yeah, that's that's true. I never looked at it that way. So then suddenly that becomes an arguable point that they can be like, yeah. Rob, he's getting victimized again. That was the argument about Donald Sterling. The, oh, God, uh, the yeah. Owner that was, of the Clippers. Yeah, yeah. That was the argument. Like, Jeez, you know, that like blew hey, up. the guy's getting illegally wiretapped. You know, well, give him a give him a break. Yeah, that's right. He didn't know. He's just an yeah. old, doddering old man, which, yeah, true enough. I feel I heard some argument that he was actually asking her to tape him because yes. he felt like his head was going to tapioca and he couldn't remember anything anymore. So he's like, please tape me so that I remember all the things that I say. Apparently that's the truth. Yeah. That, that yeah. it was actually part of her job. So he wiretapped himself, basically. Yeah, yeah and she, her job was to tape their conversation so that he would remember what they talked about. Mm. So, like, there were certain issues that he had to clear up and certain things that he had to do. She was apparently employed by him in some sort of a in PR some capacity. Sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, it's funny because even discussing it, like, like, what does this guy have a right to privacy? People are like, I can't believe you're supporting him. Like, <laughs> there's so many fucking morons out there that have the ability to comment on anything that gets discussed. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't. Think of the guys thinking is reprehensible, but yet think, hey, why is this? Is it why is it okay to just listen to a private conversation that this guy's having because mm-hmm. somebody recorded it and then fine him for that private conversation? I don't think it is. I don't think it's fair. You're right. I mean, I'm I. These are one of you know you've heard this a lot of times, and of course you have to separate what he said and the reprehensible. Clearly, the long-standing reprehensible nature of this man has he's you know sort of proven to be over like 20 year span and then of course the question is and it's been asked already why why is he still in that position where everyone knows he was a a racist dirtbag but no one was you know doing anything about it and i think at this point they got the players basically pushed it they said listen if you don't get rid of this guy we will not come out and play anymore and apparently it got to that point he he also represents a very unsavory aspect of our culture yeah that's right so it's important to take a stand Mm -hmm. and say hey this guy's got to go what I didn't get, the thing that puzzled me the most, is that they fined him $2.5 million for a conversation that he had in his house. Yeah. Like, I don't see that standing up in court. I, I want, yeah, don't. and he is, he's a litigious dude, so. Oh, he's going to sue the fuck out of them. <laughs> yeah, he is. They're going to lose so much money. They're going to lose millions of dollars because they tried to fine him $2.5 million to make a point. They're going to lose yeah. so much money. And I had, I wondered a conversation too, you know, because now the value of that team is up in the air. Like, what is it, what is it worth, you know? And I think, I think it's going to be worth more because once they, if they make him sell it. You know what I mean? Because then yeah. it's almost like tabula rasa. We can redo it. It's like we're getting rid of this old troglodyte and we're, uh-huh. we're instead, you know, who knows? It might be like black ownership who comes in. Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson. Like I think Oprah Winfrey was sort of in talks. She wasn't. Was oh, just, she was? That was no, all just was n- nonsense? Okay. Um, but yeah, Magic Johnson would be the, because he was one of the ones who was actually insulted deeply. Plus he has uh, HIV. It's even better. Right. He's got, everything's good. <laughs> he loves Jesus. Get him in there. He's an ex-Laker. Yeah, he's, he's perfect. He's Great perfect. Basketball player, yeah, yeah, he, and he was one of the ones that I think she was uh, in trouble for taking photos with. That's right. That's and that's what Sterling brought it up. He was like, "Do we really have to have you taking pictures with Magic Johnson?" Fucking shithead. 
What a dumb. <laughs> but it's shit. an interesting, you know. It it is it is, in, and it's amazing how quick it blew up to me. Mm-hmm. Like I just saw it on some website, and I thought, well, there's just an old dumb white guy saying old dumb white guy things. But it was much, much clearly much bigger than that. Well, if it was something else, like say if he was. Um... Say if he was the president of a company, a big company, General yeah. Electric or something like that, and he had a little piece on the side, and he was like, hey, stop taking pictures with black eyes. It wouldn't get nearly the response as someone who has benefited tremendously yes. from black athletes. That's right, that's right. The amount of money that that guy has made because directly because of the work of black athletes, yes. it's got that whole slave owner type Absolutely. quality yeah. to it, yeah. you know? And there were there were rumors that you know back in a couple of years ago he'd gone into the the dressing room and all the you know basketball players have been in various stages of undress and he's like I, I like seeing all this you know black black flesh you mm-hmm. know what I mean sort of a thing so well he said to a woman he brought a woman oh is that how it was the locker room yeah and he was saying look at all these beautiful black bodies that's right that's the yeah. exact quote yeah yeah who knows if you really who knows that. yeah I think things like that are going to spiral in all sorts of direction and you can you can quote things that may, he may or may not have actually <laughs> said but I mean the guy does you know at a certain point it's like. You've opened Pandora's box, my friend. Yeah. Uh, well, he didn't even mean to. It no. Just so dumb and old. That that's he, right. He can't remember shit. No. So Pandora's box sort of opened itself <laughs> on its own. That's right. Do you think though that as a writer, yeah. that like studying guys like that, do you actively do that? Do you actively like watch how a guy thinks yes. and sort of absorb his stupid thinking? I certainly find I've done it more in magazine articles I've wrote like profiles you know of of people but I've used that to move into into my fictional work too. So like um you like if it was a basketball player say that you were following around you would try to climb into their mindset. Uh, yeah and shadow them really mm-hmm. like you physically shadow them and and what is your day can I can I follow you and of course that's up to the level of how much they're willing to have you basically dog their heels for as long as they're there but i mean the more you can do that the better it's the better the actual article is going to be depending on if they want that or not but like the um the mma fighter i followed obviously he was just an which, amateur which guy is it? his name was ryan styles uh and and he actually only had one fight and it was up in red deer so like calgary and then red deer is about two or three hours away and it was like in a, a civic center sort of a thing and uh but he was really his father it's a great story man i find the best stories sometimes are where you don't quite make it you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like athletically, it's like you put your heart and your guts and your soul into it and you're just not quite good enough. Right. You know what I mean? There's something about you. You just can't quite get over the hump. You know, I think I find those are the stories that are the most hit my heart, the strongest, mm-hmm. you know, and his father is on the Calgary SWAT team now, but he was, uh, had, had played forever in the, in the junior leagues of, of hockey and he made it up for a cup of coffee with the Leafs for like two games. But he played professional hockey for, uh. for two games. And his son was like an, an incredible wrestler, sort of had the, you know, had the classic sort of MMA pedigree. And, uh, but he drove a, uh, like a sandwich truck. Do you know those things that you go around to work sites, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like a catering truck. And so I followed him for like three or four days on that job. And um, he actually said that he, he let people take things on credit. You know, and so people would build up like a hundred, couple hundred bucks before they paid it off finally. And one guy, I guess like just, you know, he went to a mechanic shop and he was like, is so-and-so here? He needs to settle his bill. He's like, no, he went up. He's like a wildcatter now up in Fort McMurray, like 10 hours away. He just bailed. He just left in the middle of the night. So Tony, you know, who has a, has a, had a wife and a young kid, got in the car, 
went up and found him and, uh, and, and got his money back, you know? So, I mean, uh, this is the sort of mentality that this guy had. So, so, and I think I got a pretty strong story out of that just by being able to stay with him long enough. He was really nice to speak to me, talk to me, and you got him burrowed inside of his head. Um, and I think the strongest work comes from as close as you can, can get to those people, you know? Yeah. Isn't it fascinating that like we have this deep, deep connection to, towards people that, really are never going to realize their goals. It's a painful, yeah. I feel the same way myself. You know what I mean? It's like, I've always felt like the mountain goes up and up and up. Mm-hmm. You gotta, you're going to hit your point on it at some point and you got to be happy with that spot where you are on the mountain whenever you, whenever you reach that spot. I think that's the biggest part in life really is just accepting your spot on the mountain wherever it happens to be. Well, it's also the, the real issue with putting all of your eggs in one basket in mm. life and that basket being athletics... Especially athletics. Especially combat athletics. Yeah, yeah. The idea that you're going to have some sort of a long and successful, fruitful career by throwing your bones at another person, trying to separate themselves from their consciousness, that's quite ridiculous. Yeah. Because just the very act of doing it in preparing for that very act, you have to, the amount of damage that your body and your brain even endures is. But we have this idea in our heads that, you know, a guy has to be an undefeated champion. Yes. And, you know, you, my son's going to be a champion someday. Like, man, if you're really lucky, your son won't be a champion. Yeah. If you're really lucky, your son will learn the valuable lessons of martial arts as far as, like, character development and the, as far as your ability to overcome what seem to be insurmountable obstacles. Mm-hmm. But to become a champion, you have to be a crazy person. Yeah. You have to be a crazy person who's obsessed with nothing but that, and that will take over your life. Yeah. And I feel like having worked, obviously, with people like that, you know, shadowed them and, and recognizing that mindset. Um, uh, I, you know, and I find, too, like there's just some point at which, like there's some gifts that are just bestowed by genetics or something, and it doesn't matter how hard you work, you're not going to quite get to that, maybe that level that separates the real, and you won't know that until you hit it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? You're not going to know that wall until you run into it. And I feel like for some people, like I was talking to one guy, just a guy at the, the gym, and, and uh, he said something more or less like the best that he, he ever felt in a fight was when he was up against someone he knew was better than him. And he knew he was going to lose, and if they fought a hundred times, he'd lose a hundred times. But he that guy, he made that guy see something about himself. He got that close to him that the other guy sort of recognized, I'm a frail. I'm made out of the same crumbling stuff that he's made out of. And so, you know, sort of pierced that Teflon armor that, that I think some fighters carry around with themselves. And he's like, that's, that's all I could do. That for me is the victory. I still lost, but I made that guy discover something about himself that he hadn't discovered up until that point. Cause he'd never been tested to the point that I got to t- I was able to test them. And I thought that's another part about just being, recognizing what you're able to do, you know, and it may not be beating them, but it's, you, you find some other measure of success. That's fascinating because to me, if you say that someone can get so close, they could test someone, that means that they could beat them. They just have to figure out what it is they did wrong. And go it out again. And work harder. That's where the madness lies. Yeah, maybe that's it, isn't it? The madness lies in the preparation. The madness lies in the trying to... Like, what separates a champion from someone who is just very good? From my personal Mm -hmm. experience involved in martial arts competition, there's a level that some people are just not willing to push themselves. Is that it, really? Yeah, Yeah, it's a big part of it. And then outside of that, the other variables are genetics, 
psychology. Some people have some people have a different psychology. What's really interesting is people that have been bullied, um, and especially people that have larger brothers that that bullied them in the house their whole life. Those are the scariest fuckers on the planet. Really? Yeah. yeah. That's like GSP. I think was bullied, and it sounds GSP shocking now, but yeah, he Chris was bullied. Chris Weidman was bullied. Oh, is that so? John Jones has a good relationship with his brothers, but he has a giant brother who's way bigger than him. His brother Arthur's a beast. Mm. He's a f- pro football player. Oh, okay. And he okay. fucks John up all the time. Whenever they <laughs> wrestle today, he still fucks he's still, John up. Uh, really? Yeah, he's huge. Jeez. So because of that, I think that John grew up with this just super athlete brother and he ain't afraid of shit doesn't you know? seem like it yeah because his fucking brother's a monster he's, and he he was sort of was imprinted him at such a young age mm-hmm. too you know i mean i think that's it too you get these things impressed on your flesh mm-hmm. at a young age and you don't forget those lessons yeah brothers are a big one man and it's usually for whatever reason the younger brother that's the real beast because the younger brother endures the beatings that the older brother gives him, and because of that, he develops this sort of steely determination yeah. that's quite frightening. Yeah, I could, I could totally see that. That totally makes sense, both on a physical level, but on an emotional kind of... Um, you know, you're getting that adamantium mm-hmm. kind of mindset about things and just got to keep prevailing. I've always thought, too, like... Because I do watch a lot of MMA, and, and I, I love it both as a sport and boxing as well, but also, like, the psychological aspect of it really fascinates me, and I've... I've always felt like how painful it must be to come up. I always think about like Michael Jordan and who were, you know, we would think differently of Dominique Wilkins if Michael Jordan never existed. Mm -hmm. And I think we'd think differently of so many fighters if GSP hadn't existed or, or Silva or, you know, John Jones, these sort Mm -hmm. of long reigning sort of champions. Um, and uh, and and I, you would know better, having been been through it. But there's, you know what I mean. There's that next level who mm-hmm. can't quite, you know, they have their one shot, they can't quite clear it, and some are lucky to have another op- opportunity to sort of go go back at it and can still make a good career for themselves. But I find that MMA, especially in the UFC right now, is there's some long reigning champions, and the people, and that's what people love. You know, they sort of love, but all the focus is on them, and then these people, the, the guys underneath, who could be awesome were it not for for a GSP. But that's the whole purpose of I being know. a champion. That's to right. Be dominant yeah. other over other savages. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, yeah. that's that's the thing about being the second best guy who could have been a champion in any other era. That's got to be so maddening. I wouldn't it be. Yeah. Like Junior oh. Dos Santos is a good example of that. People always compare Junior cuz Junior Junior Dos Santos was the champion. He knocked out Cain Velasquez. That's right. But it was at a time where Cain Velasquez was injured. He tore a ligament in his knee. His knee was all fucked up. He didn't have good mobility, and Junior caught him with a big punch. Mm-hmm. Then they fought two more times, and Cain destroyed him. Yeah, it was no, Just not Just beat him from pillar to post. Probably took years off of his life with those beatings. Mm-hmm. Like I had friends who were martial artists and fighters and you know either former pro fighters or guys who have been involved in fighting their whole life who universally texted me and emailed me and said, dude, that fight took years off that guy's life. They could, they, they just felt yeah, it even watching it through it. the TV screen. Especially the second one. The, the, the set, the, the, uh, the third one, rather, the last one, the, um, the second rematch, just an unbelievable beating that And that's Kane sort of Kane's on. thing. Kane mm-hmm. is, he, he doesn't knock you out. He just mauls you and, and really just reduces you in some terrible way. Well, he keeps a pace that's almost inhuman. Yeah. For yeah. a heavyweight. For a heavyweight, yeah. For a 240 pound man to keep up with him. Good fucking luck. Yeah. It's probably not going to happen. No. And a lot of that's genetic. 
Like I talked to Bob Cook, who's his trainer. He said that guy could go a couple of months outside of training, like get injured, be out for a couple of months, then come back in and outwork everybody. Just really? doesn't get out of shape. And he, he, wow, Mexicans are kind of known for that. There's a, yeah, a lot there's of some tough fight boxers mm-hmm. too. Like it's it's a it seems like a tough culture. You know Fuck what I mean? Yeah. Mexicans, yeah. I think uh, some of the grittiest, toughest fighters of all time. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. MMA or boxing, and in their endurance too, their stamina. Yeah. It's just shocking. And they just they don't stop. Mm-hmm. They they don't. You're right. They're sort of just like. You're going to have to hit me with a house. Like Julio Cesar Chavez. Yeah. Remember when that guy used to fight? Yeah. He would just ding, the bell would rung, ring, and he'd just start moving forward, throwing a barrage <laughs> of punches that will never end until yeah. you drop. Yeah. And if, he fought, like, didn't he have an, an enormous record in oh, terms yeah. of, like, I thought, like, 100 fights or something? Almost. More than that. He More had than 97 fights. fights before he ever suffered a loss. Yeah, that's that's how it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 97 and 0 and before that's like he ever suffered a loss. And that's, like, four careers of some other fighters, you know, in terms of overall records. or Sure. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, that's, I mean, a lot of fighters today in this day and age don't fight nearly as many times as they used to back in the day. No. But like a guy like Floyd Mayweather, who's like 45 and 0, 46 mm-hmm. and 0, I mm-hmm. think. 46 now. and 0 after the last I mean, one. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Like, but 97 and 0? I know. That's so insane. Just 97 fights, yeah. period. You know, and that's right before he hit a loss. And then uh, I feel like I could be wrong, but I feel the wheels fell off. That's, that's the, one of the quotes is, you know, like, on a long enough timeline, any any fighting stories usually can be a tragic one. And I find that mm-hmm. happens less in MMA. I feel like guys know when to retire better in MMA than in boxing. I feel like people hang on to the rope a little too I long in boxing. I wish that was true. I wish that was Are true, you but fu- I don't really? think it is. No. No, Chuck Liddell definitely didn't. And oh, he, he didn't? Because was... I, f- I was almost going to mention Chuck Liddell as like, because he did get rocked his last couple of fights and, and that it's made some... Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, not just that. The only reason why he stopped fighting was Dana White. Because Dana just said that's it. Yeah, yeah. Dana's yeah. very close with him and said, I see what's going on here, and maybe you don't because you're the fighter, mm-hmm. and you got to stop. The thing about fighters is they have this belief in themselves. Yeah. Man. It's just it's never-ending and unflappable, and especially the champions. They always think, I know everybody's counting me out, but I'm going to figure out a way to beat this motherfucker. Mm-hmm. And they go mm-hmm. into that ring with that determination. Yeah. And that's what made them a champion in the first place. But that's also what that fails them when when it comes down to like objective thinking and being introspective about your abilities and how much you've diminished. It's that sort of bulletproof belief in themselves that winds up fucking them over. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's also too they're they're young, right? I mean, comparatively, I know my, when my dad retired. Uh, it was like a trap door opened under his life in a way because he was like used to having this routine to his life and you look forward to it. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, the first week you're like, oh, this is great. And then the second week it's like, what the, what the hell am I doing? I feel like my, and then if you're looking down the barrel of that when you're at 60, 65, well, that's one thing. When you're looking down the barrel of that when you're 32, 33, something mm-hmm. like that, it's, it's got to be a different, this is what I was, this is what I'm good at. This is all I'm good at, I think some of them might think. And and then it's like, God, I've got a long existence ahead of me doing what? What am mm-hmm. I doing next? And nothing is ever going to match the thrill that fighting No, we'll never them. feel that, or I'll never feel something like that. You know what I mean? I feel like that must be, I don't know. Have you, you've talked to fighters? Do they, do they ever, are they good at describing what that feeling is like? Well, I think the only person that's ever going to truly understand what it's like to say, like, be John Jones and enter into a world championship fight with the whole world watching the cage door shuts and the Bruce Buffer, it's time. They're the only ones that'll ever understand that. Mm-hmm. I will never understand it. I've watched 
and I've done commentary on more than a thousand. And you're fights. right in the ring. You're when the endorphins are still and there. I don't when know what the fuck's going on? <laughs> I'm completely outside. And I've competed. I've kickboxed. Of I've course, fought yeah. Probably a hundred taekwondo matches. Doesn't matter. I just I don't know what's going on when that's happening. I just I can't imagine. I literally can't imagine. Do you think it's a different level than? Because I mean. Mm. I mean, it's a different level in some way in the fan, in the in the sort of the crowd response and the idea of how many eyes are on you. But I mean, when you step in, or even when I've done fighting, it's still you and another guy. So I wonder how far removed is our experience? You know what I mean? Pretty From, far. Uh, yeah, I assume it is. Certainly in terms of. But I mean, I felt like I was amped up to the point where every one of my synapses was screaming. I'm just not built to do that. You know, uh, mm-hmm. maybe they have. Maybe there's a calmness. I feel like sometimes you look and they're the top fighters are able to kind of establish a certain calmness that, that I, I've never really found in, in, when in those situations in my life, whether it's a, a playground scuffle or, or, you know, an amateur boxing match. Well, the calmness, a lot of it comes with the experience itself being something that you recognize and you've been there before and you know how to deal with it. Mm. Whereas someone who has never, like if you took a guy who has never competed at all before and yeah. you threw him in a UFC fight, they would fucking shit their pants. Yeah. Especially if they didn't know how to fight at all. Yeah. And then they, there's so many things to deal with. It would be overwhelming. They'd probably have a heart attack. Yeah. But if you take a guy like a John Jones, for, because we keep talking about him, mm. trains his whole life in uh, wrestling. So he's wrestled for many, many years, competed at a very high level for in wrestling, then started competing in MMA, trains every day, constantly in the gym, constantly working out with these really high-level guys. It becomes, you, you have a comfort level with like just the recognition of what this is. Yeah. You understand yeah. it. You get in there. You know what you can do. You're very aware of what you're capable of because you have literally pushed yourself to your limits mm-hmm. in training. And you get in there, and you are much calmer than a person who's completely alien to the experience. So I think for you, like doing it a couple of times, like you didn't have a chance to get used to it. No, not but at there's all. There's a lot of guys who do, who are yeah. probably similarly gifted, you know, or not gifted. Yes, yeah. You know? <laughs> not gifted is the way. But it's it a lot of not gifted guys go very far just you, through hard yeah. work and, and determination. just determination, and yeah, yeah. What they don't ever do is beat the great ones. No. That's yeah. the difference. Yeah. The not gifted guys can have great careers. They can get a lot out of the competition. They can become coaches. They can train fighters. They can they can become commentators. They can do a lot of things, but they can never figure out a way to beat the great ones. No, no. I, I, f- I feel like that's, uh, in my experience watching as well, there's that kind of... That's that's a separation level. It's it's as much as your heart and your talent. And there there is, you know, heart is something that is one of these ephemeral qualities that mm-hmm. no one, but I mean, there is, there. I mean, there are fighters that you know, that's what they have. That's what's getting them through. It's not necessarily their talent. It's their, I think heart is a combination of a lot of things that are kind of impossible to quantify, but you can, you can see it in, in different athletes. It doesn't have to be a fighter. That seems to be where it's most obvious to notice it, but there's lots of uh, athletes that I like and, and usually it's because they have some quality of, of heart uh, yeah. that distinguishes them in my eyes and it, they're not the best. Right. They're just there, but they've taken their skills as far as they can go. Well, that's why everybody loved Arturo Gotti and Mickey Ward. Of course, Ward. of course. Those are the, that's a classic two heart guys going up against each they other. They would just never quit. You yeah. could beat them up, you could knock them out, you could stop them, but their will was never what faltered. No, no, absolutely. It and was... it had, they had more talent. Uh, yeah. Who knows what, what their limit would have been necessarily. Or had they have trained more intelligently or yeah. competed more intelligently. I mean, a lot of that 
what what is talent you know well it's the approach that you take if you look at the way Arturo Gotti moved and punched he was very talented yeah he was wasn't just he yeah most likely that he probably just wasn't trained correctly or to the best of his ability yeah. you know if you got a guy like Emmanuel Stewart who gets a hold of a, a boxer from the time that he first starts and teaches him just incredibly perfect technique, mm-hmm. perfect strategy, the mindset, like a custom auto, what he did with Mike Tyson, yeah. molds his mindset. You know, you can you can do something that if the guy grows up with some, you know, Midwest boxing club in the middle of nowhere with a guy who doesn't really know how to box, and that's the guy who's teaching him, and that's the guy who brings it through his amateur career, and that's mm-hmm. the guy who turns him into a pro, that guy might be lacking in just giant chunks of knowledge that a guy like, say, a, a Freddie Roach has. Yeah. That you just you you never know what would create a champion out of a contender. Yeah. And sometimes it's just the it's the the mentor he runs into. Yeah, I think that I think that's I, and I I feel like that's true. Yeah, and also even mid fight, you know, because Gaddy was someone who used to get himself drawn into firefights when he didn't need to, you know, mm-hmm. and and uh, whether he's really listening to his trainer at that point or not, I I don't know. Um, but I know for me too, even even the amateur uh, things that I did, what I what I really took away from it and what I really enjoyed was was the training part of it. You know, mm-hmm. I trained. Um, I was living in Iowa at the time, and uh, there was a a boxing club at the bottom of like a really sort of. Uh, it was at the bottom of a Gold's Gym in Coralville, which is sort of like just outside of Iowa City. And uh, it was run by uh, a coach and two two girls, two uh, female fighters, the Kleinfelter sisters. And they were like 130, one of them was maybe 130, one of them was like 115. Tough, I mean, tough as nails, fast, and you'd, you'd spar. Like, I knew I was going to have to get in this amateur boxing match. And so I was like, well, don't, you better not let, be easy on me. And I don't, I'm not going to be able to really punch a, a, a girl, I didn't think. You know, and I, I ultimately I wasn't able to. But even if I wanted to punch them, I don't think I would have really been able to lay leather on them because they were fast and they were mean and they were, uh, and even if I did touch them, they'd be like, you know, you, you punch like a softy, like this is weak, weak ass shit. Uh, so, so, but I, what I really took away from it is really enjoying the, uh, the discipline, you know, with nutrition and with the, the road work. I mean, I could, I did all that stuff. I love doing that. And I felt like that was the only thing that I could actually take into my own hands and that I had some sort of um, agency in, you know what I mean? I can right. run as hard and as far, and I can I can hit the bag for, until my arms feel like noodles. That's all that I can do. You and know? you can see a direct improvement yes. of your skills. Yes, but also the there was a limit. In. Like I mean, and the one thing that I noticed, and I've said it before, is like, and I feel like other people have noticed this because I've gotten a lot of fights when I was young, but I, I don't think I ever won one. And I feel like I must exude this kind of waft of something that like I just am not a fighter but every time I've gotten in a fight it's been more that someone is I feel like is taking trying to take advantage of me or has been picking on me for a long period of time and it's the only way that this is going to stop or been or been picking on someone that I I cared about and and I always got the sense afterwards that the person who beat me up basically uh knew it knew that they're like they I can draw Davidson into a fight and I'll, and, and he'll, he'll willingly go in, he'll go into the bear trap and then I'll just be able to beat him up. And the only good thing about it ultimately is that they, the, the picking on stuff stopped, you know what I mean? Right. But I had to take a beating in order to sort of affect that, you know? Yeah. That's a weird psychological sort of a relationship between the bully 
and the the person who gets picked on. Yeah, yeah, but I feel like, and I feel like the real true fighters wouldn't even do something like that. They would recognize, well, you know, this oh, guy. Oh, for sure. I'm not going to yeah. bother with this guy. I mean, uh, for I have the most other. Part. Yeah, I mean, may, may I don't know. Maybe maybe there There's are some. There's a few fighters who like to beat the shit out of people. Or who you would see, do yeah, it. yeah. You've I even notice in fights sometimes. I feel like that guy looks like he probably might have would be happy to be beating up someone with far less skill. He'd mm-hmm. be taking as much delight in it as he is. Usually they've been abused. Is that so? Yeah. Yeah. I believe that's a big part of uh, a lot of what, what constitutes a bully is physical abuse. You know, that they've been abused either at home or they've been abused by other kids and they're trying to lash out and get theirs now. Like, yeah. They've sort of taken on the role of the bully because they've been bullied so much. Yeah. That happens a lot. I could see that. I actually... Here's the here's a sort of a story of my one of my my worst beatings. Uh, I was at the YMCA. <laughs> Me and my brother were playing basketball. I was probably like I was sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. I was my my last year of high school probably. And uh, these two guys come say let's let's play two on two. So we did. And back then I probably weighed like two forty. I was a I was a big fat dude. You know I just two forty in high school. Yeah yeah maybe 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 two, maybe two thirty. Like I was. Enormous, but it was not. Uh, it was not a healthy weight, obviously. Because what just, do you weigh now? One seventy-five, one eighty, wow, something like that. Crazy. So that's partly the whole boxing stuff. And mm-hmm. we do tree planting a lot up in Canada. That's sort of like what you do at university. You just go up to the woods and plant trees. And that I shed a lot of weight that way uh, during during university. But so I was a big beast, you know. And I sort of knew how to use my body. And the guy that I was playing against was maybe one one sixty. Um, so we were getting close to beating them. And I turn around and. I see the ball. It's whipping right at my face. He'd thrown it at me. And I turn my head, and it sort of goes by the side of my head and just, you know, gives me a scalp burn, basically. And then he's, then he's charging right at me, like, to get into a fight. And, I'm, and there was no pro- prior provocation? No, none at all. That's the thing. I mean, this guy... Just a basketball uh, game? Just a basketball game. And, 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 okay, it's in the Y. So I'm like, okay, well, we're not going to have a fight right in the middle of the Y. I, I think I'm going to be okay. That's... I mean, I didn't really want to get into a fight, but again, this guy's throwing a basketball at me. It's a pretty shitty move. So anyways, this guy comes out. He's got to be like 80 years old. He's like one of those guys at the Y that was like a retired gym teacher. And they sort of said, okay, Bill, um, you can just sort of hang out around here and keep order. That's would be nice of you to do that. So he comes out and he's got a whistle around, like an old pee whistle around his neck. And he, he says, take it outside. I'm like, I don't, the last thing I want to do is take this outside, but and 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 he says that's it guys you take this outside so i'm like oh sh-. i'm sort of like being shoehorned into going out to having a fight with this guy so i'm going down the hallway and my brother is it's like out of a he sh- he's massaging my shoulders cuz i guess he thinks that's what I, he should be doing you know that's how that's how little we know about fighting you know what i mean he's my brother's like well i guess i've seen this in rocky i should keep him <laughs> keep him limber and you know he's like oh, you're you're going to be fine and if i but i had a chance to look in his eyes he'd be like you are you are you are fucked you know what I mean? And I, I think I knew that too. So I ended up outside. It's, it's winter in, in Canada and uh, there's, you know, ice on, on, the, on the sidewalk. And, you know, I, I face up in what I assume is somewhat, somewhat of a fighting posture and he kicks me in the head. It's the first thing he does. Just like kicks me right in the head. And I'm not even sure what the hell happened. I'm still standing, you know, and then he does it again. And then I'm like, oh God, this is not, this is not good. So um, he had martial arts training, yeah, obviously. Yeah, definitely. And then, you know, there was a bike rack and I remember he like rang my, my head off of it and I'm, I'd get him in a, you know, a, a sort of a headlock and, uh, 
And I remember being like face down and there's like ice melt on the street, you know, that those blue crystals they put down, you know, and I'm, I'm, my face is pressed into it. And thankfully it goes on for a while. Clearly I'm, I'm beat. And he's like, are you, are we, are we had enough here? I'm like, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had enough. That's enough. So he goes back inside chuckling with his buddy. Um, I'm sitting out there on the street bleeding. I don't even want to go back into the why, you know what I mean? I'm going to have the people inside going, what the hell happened? Do you need help? And I'm like, I just want to crawl into a hole and, you know, not see humanity for about a, m- a month. Uh, so my brother goes inside, gets my clothes. We, we go. I find out later, this guy, we, lacrosse is a big sport in our, in our country. And he was like the enforcer on the lacrosse, the lacrosse team, like the AAA lacrosse team. So he was a tough guy. Like I didn't have a chance you know, right from the get-go, I didn't have a chance. And then, you know, I discover his name because we lived in a small town and you sort of, these things sort of come to you uh, as time goes by. And then um, my buddy calls me up a couple years later. He says, did you hear about so-and-so? I said, no, I was away at university at this point. He's like, they went camping in the woods and him and his dad, and this word gets back to your idea of abuse. He stabbed his dad 44 times, killed him. Killed him Whoa. in the woods, and they caught him just walking down the street oh, with the knife in his hand. Shit. And uh, and you know later on they interview his mom, and his mom was like, "Yeah, he was, uh, you know, he basically would sit out on the porch saying that he George Bush was going to come in Air Force One anytime, pick him up for some top secret mission. So he clearly had some some mental instabilities that didn't present themselves at the age at which at least they were maybe emerging. But Did I thought his dad later abuse him. I mean, I, that part had never been been into. I'm not, I can't really comment on mm-hmm. that. But I mean, I, I I don't know. But I think I feel like he stabbed the man 44 times. It would have to be a really heated argument. And if they had no prior sort of history with one another, yeah. I don't I don't really know. But first of all, that he stabbed him, and then he stabbed him that many times. Holy shit! Yeah, and I sort of thought later, like, man, as bad as I got it. I, I mean, I could have got a lot worse, yeah. you know what I mean? At least he, like, let me off at the end. He's like, all right. Well, I, I always try to explain that to someone who gives people the finger in a car. Like, you never know who you're giving the finger to. Exactly. My my wife has a bad habit of honking the horn. I'm uh, like, baby, I love you, do but don't, don't, don't do don't, it. Don't do it. Don't, you, you don't know. know who the hell's stepping out of that freaking car. You you know? Not only that, you never know what state they're in. They yeah. could be in the worst state of mind ever. Mm-hmm. At the moment you lay on that horn, you could have caught them at the breaking point. Yeah, and that's you what know. puts them... Yeah, you pick fucking people, especially in this day and age, when you're dealing with cities and traffic and the unnatural stress of slamming 200 fucking million people together like this. Yeah. You know, they've done these studies on, on population density um, just with rats. And they've shown how bizarre rat behavior gets when you get too many rats in oh, a yeah? contained environment. And it mirrors human beings' behavior. As far as, like, human beings, when you have uh, a small amount of them, you know, everybody seems to get along fine. Mm-hmm. But when you jam them together, you start getting all these mental illnesses. Well, that's uh. what they do with They get rats. If you have a certain amount of rats and you jam them into a, a, a box... There, a certain amount of them will just sit in the corner and start nodding their heads up and down and back and forth, and they, they, it gets really weird. Yeah, yeah. I found the same thing. I used to work at a place called Marineland in uh, Niagara Falls, which is like a, a SeaWorld kind of an idea. Yeah, we had a guy um, on that worked at Marineland. Oh, is that so? Was, really? Yeah, yeah. was involved in um, this fucking horrible situation with, uh, with dolphins, and he had to... What the fuck is his name? Phil Demers. Oh shit! You had him. Phil. Phil, Phil I interviewed yeah. him for an article I did. Yeah. Phil Demers. Yeah. Okay. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, and he was explaining us. It was Smooshy the doll, uh, Smooshy exactly, the walrus. The walrus. Yeah, yeah. He was also explaining to us how intelligent these dolphins are, and the dolphins are going hunger strikes. They have to force feed them, and that they take them away from their mothers, and they buy them from Russians. Yeah, who are really ruthless the way they they capture them. Yeah, and, yeah. I know it's 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 ugh. it's rough. It's rough stuff. Yeah. So anyway, you got you got all that already from Phil, and Phil was an insider. Phil was Phil was there after I was there, and I think things got. Um, I mean, I was never a trainer either, but, you know, some of the things that those guys saw, the animal control guys saw, was um, pr- pretty rough. But the same thing is, you have so many animals, and if you did the same to people, of course, there's going to be, like, mania, disturbing, you know, depression, mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff that we can sort of emote. You know, animals can only sort of just do it through their behavior. You get a sense of, like, this is not right. This this rat is not in a good state well the zoo you ever go to the zoo and watch an animal just pace back and forth in their small little container yeah and you're like this is nuts i, I watched this bear once and he They're would just bad walk it. to one area turn around walk to the other area, turn around and go back and forth like that animal is going mad mm-hmm. they're, mm-hmm. they're going mad mm-hmm. they're they're Animals like bears, they roam over miles and miles yeah. of countryside. And that's how their genes are sort of adopted. They're, they're adapted, rather. They're, their whole being is adapted to this idea of nature providing them with food. They go out and forage for the food. When they're just stuck in this box and the food comes sliding under the door in a tray every day, all their reward systems are being screwed up, just ignored mm-hmm. or contained in some strange sort of a way and madness. Just... No, no, exactly. It's, they and they find other way. You know, when you baffle all of those primal instincts, mm. um, and I think you know it's true. I, you know, we have a son, and will we take him to the Toronto Zoo? I mean, we might have to. Where else can you see mm-hmm. all of those creatures? You know, you you can't just go out, you know, searching the forest until you find a bear. I mean, you could. Um, but you, you do it with the understanding that no matter how nice the bear pen is or the gorilla enclosure, it, you can't, it can't do all the things that that gorilla... You just have to hope that they have a mind that is a bit more able to embrace their new situation. But, and some animals maybe can, but other animals just, like, I ain't built for this. And same, same with some men who are imprisoned. Like, I'm not, you know, the cool hand Luke sort of a thing. I'm not built for this. Yeah, yeah it ain't happening. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I, and I have children, and I take them to the zoo, but... The, is that feeling like I I do it just because my kids I want them to explore everything see as many things mm-hmm. as possible mm-hmm. but there's part of me that feels like a big hypocrite because I don't want to support containing these animals yeah this fucking penguin and it's 90 degrees out in LA like what's that fucking penguin thinking <laughs> penguin's gotta be like what am I doing here <laughs> how did I get here yeah. anyways like why is it so the hot? lights went out and suddenly I'm yeah who's this guy in this blue suit feeding me fish yeah yeah and the fish are dead already like, yeah what the fuck this, is going on well here? even getting them to learn to do that like i think a lot of animals just end up starving because they just won't learn to eat an animal that's not you know yeah. that they're normally used to catching in some way so you can't fake their enclosure they you can't they can't embrace that much of a change. Well, also, the, the, the reality of zoo life is completely alien to the reality of an animal existing in an ecosphere yeah. or in an ecosystem. So when an animal is in a zoo, that animal is separated from every other species, mm-hmm. which never happens. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. Just so bizarre. And not only that, there's nothing trying to kill them so they don't learn anything. No, All no. of their natural instincts to avoid predators just sort of like sit there mm-hmm. 
They don't, they don't experience predators. Every monkey experiences predators. Every ape experiences cats mm -hmm. in the wild. There, there's no apes that live anywhere where there's not something that might fuck them up, whether it's a spider or a snake that they should avoid or something. And they have to learn. They have yeah. to learn to keep away from that snake. That snake will fuck you yeah, up. Yeah, but that's what keeps them sharp. Exactly. You know what I mean? That's what gives them their lives purpose, really, even if it's just surviving. Well, it makes sure that the good genes pass on. Mm -hmm. And... In the zoo, it's just dumb monkeys fucking each other. <laughs> <laughs> no one learns anything. They get free peanuts. That's and right. They just, they just, that's what they're breeding. It's the weirdest form of like animal prison ever. It's very strange. No, yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. But again, you got kids. You, I mean, you do all sorts of weird things for your kids. I mm -hmm. think sometimes zoos exist but for the benevolence of, of kids or the needs of kids so that so that parents feel like, well, shit, you're not going to see this any other way. I love you. I want you to see them. I'll gloss over. I'll say, oh, look at the happy monkeys, even though in some part of you knows the these are not happy. happy monkeys. This is not natural either. But you know you're not going to take them to Borneo either. Uh, yeah, and show them natural that. monkeys. Yeah, exactly. Monkeys will steal your kid. <laughs> they will eat your kid. Um, there's been stories of chimps stealing babies. That's oh, there was an awful article in Esquire where these two, you know, two, two uh, people couldn't couldn't have kids, so they they get, get a chimp, you know, and the chimp uh, they raise the chimp like it's their kid, and then they have probably had the chimp for like 20 years. One day the chimp goes nuts, tears her face off, basically. Like chimps are incredibly mm. strong, powerful creatures, and um, you know, basically, I mean, she survives, but just barely, sort of a thing. Um, and you don't recognize that those sort of things. I think when I think of chimps, I think of that movie with Clint Eastwood, uh, whatever which those way, an orangutan. orangutan. But and those are probably even even tougher. You know, I mean, they're they're bigger creatures, but they're uh, less violent, though. Are they? They're more yeah. subdued, sort of a thing. Well, they'll still fuck you up. Yeah. If you don't dot your eyes and cross your teeth. <laughs> right. But they don't actively seek out fucking up other animals the way yeah. chimps do. Chimps yeah. have an instinct to go out and kill things. Is that so? Sure, yeah. Uh, Chimp, see, chimps are not, um, they're not herbivores. Like a lot of people have this misconception. I would, I had that up until this no, very chimps moment. Chimps are predators. Yeah. Hmm. They eat monkeys. They eat monkeys alive. Oh, Jesus. Never seen that? Never. Oh, dude, it's dark. That would be dark because that's didn't... like eating a little version of themselves, mm -hmm. basically. God damn. And they didn't, well, they, they cannibalize as well. Oh, do they really? Yes. They, they murder other chimps and they cannibalize other chimps. They cannibalize chimp babies. Uh, chimps are the worst aspects of human beings, um, like in an animal form, with intelligence. Yeah, and the, but I think that is what makes people want to adopt them because it's the closest thing to us that's not us. You know what I mean? Well, what's weird is that bonobos are close cousins, and they don't exhibit any of that behavior. But what they do is they fuck each other like crazy. Oh, really? Everybody fucks. They <laughs> fuck everybody. The the fathers fuck the daughters. The brothers <laughs> fuck their the, the their other brother. Right. They fuck their sons. Everybody fucks. Really, just like a big clan mm -hmm. of yeah, just uh, mis, you know, sort of uh, in, incest all over the place. Well, so much so that it's kind of clever on their part. They've avoided captivity because of it. Because you can't have them in the zoo because they just fuck. Oh, all the that's time. right. People are like, we can't show our kids this, <laughs> these fucking apes here going going at it all the time. Which yeah. is so weird. It's so ironic that you can you know you can have these animals doing everything in the wild except breeding. We can't tolerate that. We no. can't show our children breeding. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. They only Although, have one like rule. the pandas, they want that. Or what is it? There's one group that they are yes. desperate to find them. To pandas, have. they're trying to yeah, uh, yeah. get them to breed. The only thing that they do do avoid is the Mothers will not have sex with their sons. 
That's the only one where it's mm-hmm. verboten. Yeah, the bonobos have that one rule. For whatever reason, the mother does not want to have sex with her son, and that's it. But everything else is fair game. Everything else is <laughs> on the table. <laughs> and you won't ever see that in a zoo because they just are like, you guys just exist in the wild. We're, we're okay. We'll, we're okay with our chimps and our gorillas. And well, it's the how they zoo. resolve conflict. By fucking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so like sort of a prime, like... Uh, sort of like that's how they express dominance kind of an idea that oh, way no. or even like I pr- I'm sure uh, we argued here but let's have let's fuck around here well, everything's all right I don't know I mean I, I would probably have to study it a lot yeah, more but yeah. they do do a lot of chimp like things where they pick up branches and smack branches around and they'll pick up a large branch and they drag it on the ground to show dominance so oh, chimps okay. do a lot of that they do a lot of posturing with picking up large things shaking trees they'll shake things to show how strong they mm. are but chimps will engage in like some serious violence. Yeah, but I was not bonobos. Sh- not bonobos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe if you want to, I mean, I guess if you were into adopting it, the one part of that story, like you understand, like you have kids. You know, I have kids. I think if if you don't have kids and you've tried to have kids, I think you, people might feel that there's a, a loss in their mm-hmm. life and and something that needs to be filled. You know, and often you fill it with an animal. Of you get really into dog breeding or yeah, right. seventeen cats or something like that. These guys decided a chimp was the way to go and. I guess I would have thought like totally innocently that, yeah, okay, a chimp, whatever, you dress it up in a tuxedo and uh, do whatever. It's a little weird, but I, I get the, I get why you're doing it. I, I know it's a replacement for the fact that you can't have kids, but then when this kid goes uh, feral on you, basically, and, and attacks you in a way that... Um, There's a documentary about people that keep scary animals. It's called The Elephant in the Living Room. And it's supposed to be really good. It got an 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. Hmm. I need to watch it. But it's a documentary about the raising of exotic pets in homes and uh, how many knuckleheads in America wind up doing that. Yeah. They, they, you know, they have. Like, there was this thing the other day. I was watching this piece on this guy who has a pet mountain lion. Really? He's bottle fed it since it was a baby. Well, and, and, and is he at least in a uh, sort of a remote area? Or? I don't know. I don't. It, I didn't pay attention yeah, long yeah. enough. But he's got this cat. He's had it since it was a baby, and now it's a full grown two hundred pound female cat. And just like, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> I hope that works out. I think you are juggling dynamite right here, my friend. But uh... he might not be. You know, I mean, I don't know. What, some animals are cool with it. You know, as long as you feed them and you're sweet with them. But yeah, yeah. The bottom line is it's always going to have that instinct to chase shit. If you roll a bowl of yarn in front of a, take a ball of yarn and toss it in front of a house cat, they fucking dive on that shit. Yeah, oh yeah, can't totally. can't help it. No, no, exactly. Or like a laser pointer on mm-hmm. the wall. They're, yeah, they're bananas. You can't, that's their instinct, you yeah. know? So, and we have one who uh, comes home with all manner of, like, cats are, you can't beat cats for, like, sort of just, like, sadism. Oh, they're worse. They came home once, it was night, and I was like, what do you got there in your mouth? And she opens her mouth, and it was a baby mouse alive. She just cradled yeah. it in her mouth, like, but I realized if I'd come five, she was just going to play with it until it either died of fright or, she, yeah, she chewed it up basically. So I yeah. think like a dog, a dog just goes and gets what it wants, eats it. Most yeah. animals do, but man, a house cat, especially because they're all their needs are covered. So it's mm-hmm. like, this is all just fun for me. My cat know? threw up a mouse once. Ugh. He had eaten it. And uh, then just puked it in the living room. Oh, that's rough. She actually. <laughs> yeah, ours are ours are females. Girl. I too, had a yeah. male cat too, but it wasn't the male cat that did it. It was the female. 
She just barfed it up. Yeah. <laughs> just like little mouse oh, that's wrapped terrible. up in cat food oh, and puke and no. hair, hairballs yeah. and shit. I'm like, oh, you disgusting monster. <laughs> it's fucking weird because they're looking at you like they're purring and everything oh, yeah. rubbing up against you. Like they're so sweet. But you think, man, if I was an inch tall, you would make sport out of me. You would oh, make yeah. mincemeat out of me and you would have no, not a goddamn care in the world about no, that. No, no remorse. No, no remorse at all. Yeah. I, was, I, I enjoy uh, reading... <laughs> Reading, uh, I just got into this last week, uh, reading vegan forums on oh. how to uh, feed their cats. And they, they almost all reluctantly have to admit that their cats need meat. Right, right. Because cats have very high protein requirements, much different than a human being's and much different even than a dog. Mm. You can feed dogs like a certain amount of vegan food, and and do vegans do keep that. Would they say we're we're this is a vegan vegan household, mm-hmm. and that counts on our dogs and cats yep. as well. They do it with their dogs. Wow, people get away with it with their dogs. They don't get away with it with their cats. Yeah, cats just they just wouldn't be healthy. You know, really it'd be, be like mistreatment, animal cats mistreatment. Cats like this all day. <laughs> I need some protein. <laughs> but just... mangy looking fur falling out. No, he's fine. He's just. I'm going through a, a stage. Just reading the the torment that these people have gone through before they make the decision to feed their oh, cat I, meat. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I can imagine. I can only imagine. You know, <sighs> I had one. T- I tr- I was trying to do a, an article on um, on pit bulls, uh, which I thought would have been really interesting because one thing I noticed it, in research was like people in different parts of this country breed pit bulls differently based on where they are from. Like Kentucky, Arkansas, they breed like a really lean. It's almost like fighters, like a really lean, fast version of a dog, whereas in, in California, uh, or sorry, Florida and Miami area, they breed like really big, bulky, kind of. That's sort of what the, the genes that they want to put together. And uh, yeah, for, for the purposes of, of fighting these um, creatures. Um, and I, I mean, I, I, I like pit bulls. I've met, I've met not, you know, nice pit bulls, you know. Um, but I do, I do know from what I've researched anyways that they're like bred into they're built to be fighting creatures that's sort of Mm -hmm. what they were bred for um and not sort of what that's exactly what they were bred for and so that sort of thing is always in there is is in their dna helix it's sort of it's sunk in there and uh you know you go onto these pit bull forums and you experience in the same way with vegan like a very strong emotional kind of like you don't understand you don't get it and i wasn't even coming from a perspective of like intolerance or hatred. I was just coming from a perspective of I just want, would like to talk about it. Where do you go to a, a pit bull fighting uh, forum? Oh, it wasn't fighting. This was what they do with this one was um, they inv- it's sort of like tractor pulls for dogs. Oh, So I they see. hook them up to sledges yeah. and they see how much, how many bricks mm. they can carry. And, and that's sort of like, I mean, I'd much rather that, right? Just like strength events basically for these dogs. But I, I, do, I, I sort of had the temerity, I guess, to, to say... You know, you guys, I hope, I can see why you're doing this. You're sort of doing this because these dogs have these instincts and it's better to have them pulling a sledge than fighting, you know, fighting one another or fighting other dogs. And, uh, you know, you're, you're just sort of assaulted by these people who are like, you don't get it at all. These are the nicest creatures ever. And I, I wasn't even coming from saying they're, they're not nice creatures. You know, I, I, again, I feel like a lot of it with animal ownership is the owner. It's really not the, the dog always. You know, a, a dog, when it's born, can go any number of different ways. But when you see a, a pit bull owned by a guy who's driving around like a jacked up pickup truck and his dog's got like a spike collar on and he's mm-hmm. carrying around by a link of, you know, chain, you're like, 
that dog might potentially have been raised with a certain higher, you know, the the aggression might have been brought out of him more than this dog that had grown up with the family with three kids in it, you know? Yeah, they can be good pets, but they're always dangerous around other dogs, always, Mm -hmm. almost always. Yeah. It's very rare that you get a pit bull that doesn't have animal aggression. Yeah, yeah. Just thousands of years of genetics. Yeah. They've raised them to be aggressive and to fight other dogs. I love pit bulls as pets, but Mm -hmm. I won't have them just because it's a drag. Like your friend brings their dog over and your dogs don't play. They mm-hmm. go to war. You know? yeah, it's exactly. Just and you're not, it's not, yeah, exactly. If it's two pit bulls, it's one thing. But if your friend brings over his black lab, yeah, it ain't, it ain't a fight. It. Yeah, it's, it's not it. a fight. And I went, I did, uh, went into the SPCA and they just busted a ring and they had like 40 fighting dogs. And they were so nice around the SPCA workers, mm-hmm. all the, but they ended up having to, to destroy most of them or maybe all of them even because they're, it's, it is, it's like having a, uh, a, a stick of dynamite with a fuse of indeterminate length that could blow up at any time, mm-hmm. you know? And they just felt like you had been bred to this sort of utility and this is what you're good for and it's not your fault, but you're just, you're not safe out in general population anymore. They also, if they're not trained properly, can be very dangerous around children because they don't recognize children as adults. Ah. Uh, well, they'll acquiesce to an adult's demands and requests. They th- look at adults as being the ones that are in control. Mm-hmm. They don't look at children along the same lines. They see something their height and they just attack it. Uh, it's again. fucking really dangerous. It is. It is. It is. And and I mean, again, there's going to be people listening to this who are or pitbull fanciers, and they're going to. I've had a bunch of them. Have you? Yeah, yeah. 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 Who have who have had have had words about this or have been? I, no, I've had pitbulls. Oh, you've had pitbulls yourself. Yeah, oh, okay, okay. I, I came home once, and my dog had killed my dog in the living room. You're kidding? No, they went to war when I was two gone. pitbulls. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, believe me, man. I'm, I'm, I love them as animals. I will never have them as pets. Not anymore. Yeah, yeah. So you've got kids now too. Of course. Even if I didn't have kids, I just, just would never enough. deal with it. Yeah, yeah, they would get out and attack the neighbor's dog or something. That happened to uh, my dog's dad. Got out of his yard, crawled into the neighbor's yard, attacked the neighbor's dog, and the, the animal control guys came over and killed it. Yeah. It's, just, it's fucked. It's like, first of all, it's fucked for the neighbor. You know, the dog's barking, like dogs bark at each other, and they're thinking, you know, hey, I'm yeah, just talking whatever. shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the dog's like, oh, for real? Yeah. We're going to fight to the death. <laughs> like, no, yeah. we're not fighting to the death. What the it's fuck like, are you talking about, I'm already about, in man? your yard. It is it's to like, the death. That's the only way I know. You with the so... guy in the basketball court. Yeah, exactly. You, you realize you're like, holy shit, I'm, I'm up against a different breed of humanity yeah. right now. Was kicking me in the head yeah. out of nowhere, and you know, you're just trying to play basketball, and your brother's rubbing your shoulders. <laughs> Neither one of you know what the fuck you're doing. No, we're totally neophytes, and and you know, and there was something, you know, this is probably way too like writerly, but there is something about the eyes of a guy like that that you're oh, just yeah. like, oh, I'm, you know, you know, you're done before you're done. I've you met know, you're done before hundreds you of those dudes. Yeah. There's just something clockwork and around mm-hmm. in their eyes, like, and you're just like, oh no, 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 I'm not, I'm not built to this standard. This is not going to work out too well for me. Yeah, there's yeah. guys that enjoy beating the fuck out of people. And yeah, like I said, a lot of them have had the fuck beaten out of them, and it becomes, and that's one of the things that they say that's the most horrific thing about sexual abuse is that a lot of the abused become abusers when they get yeah, older. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like a re- repetitive of the son <sighs> re-expresses so, the sins of the father. So dark. It's yeah. such a weird thing. It makes you realize, too, just how fortunate. Like, I, again, I know you sp- you spoke about your mom and you have a good relationship with your mom. I, a good relationship with your father as well? No, no, no. Terrible. Okay. Oh, okay, I don't okay. know him. I, I, he, I, he was a horrible guy. But my experience up until I was uh, five years old was just him being really violent and scary. 
to, to both you and your mother? No, mostly to my to mother. mother. Oh, okay, Not okay. really to me, but uh, enough so that it's just a scary thing to watch. Yeah. Well, so you know, I mean, I was very fortunate. You realize how luck is based on so many things that just who your parents are, where, where you're born in the world. And, uh, um, and, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been very fortunate that way, but I know friends, uh, who have had, you know, different situations. So, but anyways, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you get your hand in life. You do what it, what, what with it, what you can, but some people's hand is just unmanageable. And that is just the reality of being a human being. There are certain people that are just abused to the point of no return before they ever get a chance to try to sort their life out. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. even begin to know how to manage that. I wouldn't know what to do. And I I know people that have uh, adopted, uh, abused kids. And, you know, the kid is, they've had the kid since the kid was three. And the kid's now uh, in kindergarten and fucked. The kid's fucked. No. And my my, my wife is a, a... a child services social worker, which I mean, it's tough. It's tough. And she told me this one story. I I, I can repeat it. Um, and she she goes over with this this other uh, with a cop actually to apprehend these kids. Opens the door. Dirtbag father answers it. My kids aren't here. Kids haven't been here for days. Uh, she's like, well, we have reports that your your wife said that they are here because they're certainly not with your 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 ex. And, you know, basically they had a warrant. They got inside. Room's empty. Apartment's empty, as far as they could tell. Closet's open. Closet's open ajar. So they open it up. Two kids in there, in the closet. And the one thing that my wife noticed was that the wallpaper, I don't know who wallpapers the inside of a closet, but whatever, it was ripped in rags. And the kids had been eating it because they had been in there for so long that... uh, Mm. That that was sort of how it how it came. That way they got to the point where they were they were eating the wallpaper. I was um, listening to this uh, podcast recently. There's this podcast that uh, I really enjoy called Radio Lab, mm. and uh, one of the episodes of Radio Lab dealt with this guy. Um, the, the episode's called Escape, and it de- dealt with this guy who had spent his entire life in and out of jail, mm. and it was about his uh, his childhood and how he was sort of abandoned and he was raised by i forget what relative but they didn't feed them and so him and his do- his sister would eat paper at night just to fill their stomachs so because they were in agony from hunger pains yeah yeah you know you you read about shit like that and this you know this guy goes on this horrific cycle of childhood abuse and becomes this criminal and and he winds up meeting this woman and falling in love and actually having a family, but still keeps fucking up and can't figure out a way to stop. And mm. you hear it from the woman, you know, like the woman who married him, her point of view of like, what can he do? The guy grew up like in this horrific state mm-hmm. and he just, he's broken. He's a broken man. It's fucked. And it's, yeah, it's like before he even had a chance really oh. to make his own decision about some of these things. Um, yeah, yeah. I know. I don't mean to be a downer no, about any just, of this. Yeah, yeah. Well, it as is. a as a writer, I, I what what I was going to ask earlier about watching things mm-hmm. that you you know watching humans that you don't agree with or watching things, studying human behavior. Mm-hmm. How when you do that, do you try to put yourself in the mind of the abused or the mind of the abuser? Like, do you try to put yourself? 
into these people's heads to try to see what was like this guy mm-hmm. who, you know, they found him and, you know, he's saying like, no, nope, my kids aren't here. And then they find the kids in the closet. Do you try to put yourself in that guy's mind? No. I mean, in that case, I put myself in the mind of the social worker because, mm-hmm. you know, it was easier to, for me to put myself in the mind of, of my wife rather than put myself in the mind of, uh, of someone like that. You know what I mean? But even in the troupe, there's, there's a character, Shelly, who is, uh, you know, has some very serious things wrong with him. Uh, and, um, so, so yeah, I think part of it is trying to put yourself as closely into that mindset as, as you can, um, while recognizing that you can never quite bridge that gap. You know what I mean? Cause, cause I mean, that's just a leap that I can't quite make, you know? Mm -hmm. So you just have to hope that, that you're getting close enough that uh, the, the reader is, I've always said as, as a writer, you just need to be one step ahead of your reader. It means you have to have done that little bit more, more, more research or just spent more time thinking about these things that a reader hopefully is going to read really quickly and it's going to be like, okay, okay, it's not, nothing is really sticking out that is enough that's going to make them sort of check up, which all people do in a book or a movie. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, you've just, this is too far. You Suddenly you've sort of crossed some sort of boundary that no, I'm no longer quite with you in the way that I was before. Um, and you never know what it, like I was, I was, you know, having dinner yesterday at the, the hotel bar and I ended up next to this guy, um, talking to him and he, he was like a big Tom Clancy reader. And, and I said, oh, I, I've had people, like I had a guy get in touch with me once, uh, cause I, I wrote some sort of book that had some military stuff in it and he was sort of said, well, you know, um, not to, not to be a nitpick or anything, but the, the clip capacity of an M16 is actually 16 rounds and not 17, as you said. And I'm like, I get it. I mean, I get it. I get that's that's wrong. That's a mistake. Um, mm-hmm. But I think probably the sto- the, what I'm trying to do is not really having, it'd be great if I could have caught that and it was more scrupulous to fact, but mm-hmm. really you're trying to weave a narrative and fiction. Right. But some readers, that's what they want. They well, want- It takes they, them out of it if you don't it does, get the facts exactly. right. It does, exactly. If you don't get the facts right, if you don't, if you're doing something about medical stuff and, and you're not, you haven't been scrupulous about it, mm-hmm. then- um, then yeah, then you're going to get, but I mean, I, the guy mentioned, he's like, that's why I can't read Stephen King because he gets apparently too many things wrong. And I'm like, I am so deep into most Stephen King narratives that I don't. I wonder what he gets wrong. I wonder that too. I, I, I sort of asked him and he wasn't able to, he wasn't able to say anything. It was just a generalized sentiment that now he gets a, things wrong. That guy might just be a dickhead. <laughs> he, a whiny might, dickhead. he might have been. He was, he was, uh, he was a defense contractor. He sounds like a dickhead. <laughs> If he can't tell you the exact things that Stephen King got wrong, like any particular examples, he's got to be a dickhead. Yeah. Well, and sometimes you just find yourself faced up against someone. He said something like, well, uh, you know, fracking, you know, fracking. The, sure. And he's like, well, I've, I've, you know, done research and there's absolutely not a damn thing wrong with fracking. And it's a myth, just like global warming is a myth. Huh. And I was like, oh, okay, I think we're probably on different sides of this and I'm not going to get into an argument with you about it, but... Uh, that's where you just tune out of a conversation. You're just like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm out of this. The right dangers now. of fracking are not a myth. No, I mean people are light up their their tap water. I don't know if yeah. you've seen that. You know, well, so... people have been able to do that. I've looked pretty deeply into it. People have been able to light up their tap water long before there was fracking. It is possible that well waters get is in, getting they, mm-hmm. they get contaminated, but the reality of contaminated well water is directly related to fracking is undeniable. Yeah, because they're they're blowing out the earth yeah. and then it's seeping through into the into the yeah, they're, well. And they're getting better at fracking. They're figuring out a way to do it that's more efficient. But the reality is, you know, you gotta break some eggs to make an omelet. Mm-hmm. These guys don't give a fuck. Yeah. They're they're trying to get natural resources out of the ground and they're not trying to not pollute. They're just doing their best to confirm 
to conform to whatever regulations that get established yeah. that allow them to make money, and those regulations are directly influenced by the very companies that make fucking trillions of dollars. Yeah. They own the politicians. They buy all the regulations. They make sure that everything is in place so that they can make money. Totally. It's, I mean, there's definitely some damage that fracking has done. Yeah. The, the question becomes, is it okay? Is it okay that this damage is done because there's a plus side? That People are employed. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of natural gases and a lot of natural resources that we can harvest. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's a different question. Yeah. But the idea that it's a, it's a myth and there's nothing wrong with fracking, that guy's a dick. <laughs> <laughs> those, those fucking right-wing chatterboxes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And it just come right out with it, too. I've been with like two minutes of us talking. I'm like, well, mm. now suddenly I'm not getting into this with He's you. an idiot. Uh, yeah. He's yeah. an idiot. And the idea that global warming is a myth, too. He's an idiot. Yeah. Global I feel like, come on. It's pretty I, well established. And whether or not it's human influenced, there's that's a debate mm-hmm. that most scientists almost, I think it's some insane number. It's like 99% yeah, now. Think are. that it's human influenced. Mm-hmm. And since he's not a fucking scientist, <laughs> maybe he should shut his dirty hole. Yeah, uh, and I feel I felt almost like a fuck. I hate to say it, Joe, but like a bit of a fraud that I didn't go up against him. You know, because you're I would have like, I would have walked away. Yeah, you can't fight every battle, but there's a sense of like because that's the conservative thing is like to come right at you, and mm-hmm. I feel like well. Fuck if I don't if I don't come back and say something I've sort of just like let him believe that his point is valid from look my at perspective. You. You're a Canadian. You're a liberal. You wear glasses. I know. He fucking hates you already. <laughs> it was amazing. He even spoke to me in the first place. <laughs> he only like... spoke to you to correct you. <laughs> he wanted yeah. to correct you and Stephen King and these fucking pussies that are yeah. scared of fracking. <laughs> You're worried about global warming. I'm gonna buy land up in your country. <laughs> Meanwhile. You know, they don't understand that global warming, it changes both the cold and the warm. The cold gets colder. Yeah, that's one of the big warmer. arguments is like, well, look, look at how, you know, look at how cold it is now. We had a hell of a winter. Don't then understand. It's like, you don't, it's the fluctuations yeah. that are, are the things you are need to be looking at, you know, but whatever. It's a, it's a worthless sort of thing to get into, you know, especially with this guy had to be like Donald Sterling's age. It ain't. Oh, know, it ain't yeah. worth fighting it. It ain't worth He's fighting it at that point. He's an old dickwad. Yeah. You should have scared him and see if you could give him a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> see if he could get his little fucking ticker. shitty ticker. Just going, yeah. Give out yeah. on him. <laughs> Enough of you with your defense contracting and your global warming denying. Ah, yeah, I know. You just sort of feel like, well, at least I don't think, I think you're too old to have too much of a sway in this other than your vote still counts as much as mine does. I like so. talking to guys like that just to find out what makes them draw those conclusions. Mm. But what what I'm always fascinated by is- Because you've done that on this show. You've, you've, sure. t- you've had people who, you know, have contrary positions to what, but you're able to engage with them, I think, in a really- a really interesting uh, way that's that's not terribly it's confrontational but it's not i don't know i don't know how to describe it right but i've seen you do it and it's a, it's a skill obviously yeah well i uh i like to talk to people that have strong beliefs and systems in, in things rather to find out what where the how their belief systems are formed mm-hmm. i want to know that if there's is there a, a logical rational sort of basis to their belief systems yeah. or is it just that they've sort of adopted this predetermined pattern which yeah. is very common very much so yeah I had a conversation with a guy in jiu-jitsu class about global warming where he was talking, and he just he's 24 years old. He's a military kid, and he was uh, – someone else brought up global warming, and the kid goes, it's a natural cycle. It's always happened. It's a natural cycle. I go, you're not a scientist. <laughs> I go, you, are you a scientist? You're not a scientist, Yeah, are right? you sure? Well, are you, you going to show me your PhD? Are you a scientist? 
you're not a scientist, right? <laughs> no, I started mocking him. I go, listen, man, you're being silly. You don't know what the fuck you're talking mm-hmm, about. Mm-hmm. Like, where'd you and where'd you yeah. get it? Just tell me where you got that mindset. Where but did it, it come from? It's that no nonsense right wing mentality. Yeah, yeah. They, like, is don't even question it. It's clearly. What's really fascinating about it is that they're always supporting big business, but yet no one gets fucked over more than blue collar folks when it comes to big business. No one gets fucked over more. I've always more. felt that too. It's like some sometimes this outlook is actually the one that's most injurious to you in a way of, mm-hmm. of your own life and your own, you know, sort of happiness in a way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the, I mean, you if you think about it, the people that are less educated, for the most part, are more likely to work for a company or need a company to employ them. Mm-hmm. Those are more likely people that are going to get lower paying jobs. Those are more likely people that are going to need some form of public assistance or it's possible. Mm -hmm. But yet those are the people that have this uh, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps mentality and that these fucking welfare rats, they have all these crazy ideas in their head. Whereas the educated people who are more likely to be able to fend for themselves or more likely at least to have the possibility to have a higher paying job because of the fact they're educated, at least in theory, Mm -hmm. or more likely to support public assistance, or more likely to be against some of the environmentally destroying policies of of big businesses. It's real weird how people just sort of form these these patterns that they lock into. And that, that, as you said, can be really against their own self-interest and self-benefit going forward. Um, yeah. But I don't know about you, but I found, like, as I've gotten older, like, when I was in school, I was a total, like, lib. Like, mm-hmm. like almost as left as you could go, as PC as you could go. And as I get older, I feel like I come, I come to some sort of, not the center, mm-hmm. I'll always be to the left. But you know what I mean? There's, there's certain things about liberal, you know, that get on my nerves as well. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, and that's just... I feel like any fully rounded human being is not going to always be in one camp that's, entirely. Yeah, you know? that's a healthy approach, I think. I'm very much a conglomeration of liberal and conservative yeah, ideas. I found like more and more. Well, there's an old saying: "Show me a, a young man who uh, show me a, a young man who is not liberal, and I'll show you a man with no heart. Show me an old man who's not conservative, and I'll show you a man with no brain." Mm-hmm. And it's that somewhere along the line, you realize that people need a certain amount of difficulty in life. They need a certain amount of hardship and they need a certain amount of, they they need obstacles and they need to overcome those obstacles. And when you set it up so that they never have to overcome obstacles and you give them a consistent series of safety nets, they get lazy. Mm. And that is true. And that doesn't mean that all people on welfare are lazy or that welfare is only for the lazy. That's ridiculous as well. Mm -hmm. But there's some lazy fucking people out there and not just lazy, lazy thinkers. There's just, there's a lot of weakness. And when you give people the lottery ticket, you know, what happens? They fucking, they lose all their money and they Mm -hmm. fall apart. It's Mm -hmm. just, people need to accomplish things. It's, It's a part of the whole genetic sequence that has been sort of ingrained in the human species from all of our past behaviors. I mean, all of our human reward systems of accomplishing things and feeling good about accomplishing things and building up self-confidence, and that's real, you know? So the the pull yourself by your bootstraps, in a lot of ways, that's good advice. Yeah. Unfortunately, it gets conglomerated and, and attached to this hatred towards homosexuals, this weird, you know, fucking pro-war stance. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. Just, it's, it's a so, strong religion, yeah. religious kind of uh, 
context and flavor to things as well, which kind of has a, you talk about things happening when you're a kid. I've always felt that, you know, that's one of the things that, that really influences your thinking and, and the way that you have an outlook on the world. It's, and it's, I think that's a part of what religion does is they want to get you young and they want to get you indoctrinated and they want to sort of have a, a good soldier for the, for the battle going, oh, yeah. going forward kind of a thing. Um, and that was, I never grew up that way. I don't know about you, but like I, we're, we're not a very religious household, um, but I've certainly come across a lot of religious, and some of whom are like totally awesome and really nice and really, and I, I, my, my wife actually came up really Baptist. And there was some point like around when she was 18 or 19, it's just like, I can't do this anymore. I, I I'm tired of feeling bad about myself for X, Y, Z. You know, and so she sort of left the fold, but she said that was one of the most difficult things she ever did, peeling away from really all of her friends, all of, all of that, you know, because of the entire, it was a nice little safe bubble that she was in. And, and she, she still likes a lot of those people to this day. Um, but overall, it was something she felt she had to do in order to sort of and grow, I guess, or, or, or make some sort of separation from that time in her life. Well, there's a disconnect. If you, if you subscribe to religion and, and all of its principles by the book, you, there's a, just a massive disconnect you have to have. Mm-hmm with just reality itself yes. if you're believing in adam and eve and resurrections and miracles and no evidence whatsoever to support any of these things Mm-mm. that are completely contrary to anything that you've ever experienced and then all the evidence that you see of science oh earth is only six thousand years old according to this book oh okay <laughs> well, didn't they just find some hundred million year old shit lies <laughs> propaganda yeah. by the liberal media they were planted down there by yeah. you know by barack yeah, well, you know, the homosexuals are yeah, they, not they, condoned They're by very the good diggers, I'll have you know, and they went down and they buried those bones. And yeah. they sort of acid-dated them somehow so that they seem older than they are. But well, you know, not. carbon dating is not an exact science. No. Fracking is a myth. Yeah. <laughs> you know, meanwhile, they'll, they'll talk bad about homosexuals while they're eating a shrimp cocktail. And you're like, yo, dude, you got to read the whole book. Because there's more shit about not eating shellfish mm-hmm. than there is about being gay. Yeah. You know, you're not supposed to eat shrimp. You're not supposed to eat pigs. Like, there's a lot of shit that you're doing wrong. You're not supposed to work on Saturday. Oh, that's right. Yeah. There's yeah. A lot of, you're not supposed to have religious tattoos, you fuckhead. Like, oh, is that so? Fuck yeah. You're not supposed to tattoo your body. That's in the Bible. Oh. People have religious tattoos. It's like, talk about not reading the whole book. Yeah, oh, like, exactly. I think, and you just pick and choose. Sure. And one of the funniest things is, you know, really hardcore uh, uh, Christians will will make fun of, you know, Scientology, which, fair enough, <laughs> go ahead. I'm, I'm perfectly fine if you want to make fun of Scientology. But, but to obligate their own kind of weird stories that, mm. that their book presents as well, it's like, yeah, it's... It, there's a certain you are you not spotting the irony here that there's a certain similarity between their weird thetan run sort of stories and your weird you know uh, died and reborn after three days kind of and and all the sort of you know stories that that we w- sort of beggar reality as well well i think compartmentalized thinking is very dangerous and i think once you just sort of make your mind up that your way is the only way mm-hmm. you stop being objective and you cease all introspective thought you get sort of locked into this mindset and you put these blinders on. They don't allow you to see you 
you you to see yourself is how ridiculous you are, and that's how people get caught doing dumb shit. Like yeah. Ted Haggerty, the guy who was oh god, yeah, running this giant religious church, huge stadium filled with people. Yeah, that's right. Meanwhile, Super we church. smoking crystal meth and banging <laughs> gay prostitutes. And there's this recent guy who's anti-gay marriage proponent. Who turns out he would run a a, a female yeah, uh, drag that's right. strip show. That's right. Yeah, yeah. What is homeboy's name, Jamie? This guy, it just came out the other day. He was a North Carolina um, politician. And he was a fucking, he's a drag queen. And he, It's he so obvious gays. that you see that. There was that other one recently where that KKK guy shot, mm-hmm. like, and then they find out he'd had sex with a, a, male a, black, a black male prostitute yes. dressed as a, as a woman or of something like that. Of course he did. It's like, you're, it doesn't take long before you somehow dig into these guys' history and you're like, I, it's not even surprising anymore, really. It's like, I knew that little skeleton was in your closet No, 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 somewhere. no, no, Craig. See, that's the liberal media. <laughs> Just This man is in jail. He it's can't a myth. talk for himself. <laughs> so the man's in jail. They and planted they say, oh, that information. Just now have the information that he had sex with a gay male prostitute? How about, wh- wh- where were you a year ago? Do you know how easy it is to doctor macrofiche so that they could go back and look through it and it would be there? Pretty easy. Pretty easy. The so, government, they're watching what you're doing right now. Here's homeboy. That's uh, what he used to Steve look like Wild. when he was in Oh, drag. really? His name's Steve Wilde. Just, <laughs> just, on a, just a rough number of cocks in his mouth. How many <laughs> say, do you say? A, a thousand lifetime at least? I would say that probably is a Look a, at him. That's a face you just want to fuck. <laughs> Big, fat, chubby cheeks. He probably knows how to take a dick like a champ, especially when he's got the earrings on. Those are just handles. Big grips. Big, grippy earrings. Look at him, silly bitch. Dummy. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with dressing no, up like a woman. No, not at all. It's nothing wrong with sucking a thousand cocks. No, but it's when you're sort of, when you're... Uh when you espouse a certain viewpoint that's totally against all of that, of you know, and is really mean-spirited and hateful towards that kind of a thing that really gets on your nerves, yeah. obviously. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. But people love to do that. They love to point the finger. It's like no one loves to criticize women for being promiscuous more than sluts. Mm-hmm. Sluts love to shit on other sluts. Is that so? Oh, good googly <laughs> moogly Nick Cutter, <laughs> a.k.a. Craig. They they do, man. It's like a big thing with girls. They're, the Girls who are promiscuous love to shit on other girls who are promiscuous. They're always, oh, that fucking bitch. She's a whore. She's a fucking everybody. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're fucking everybody. <laughs> you know, and men do the same thing. Guys who sleep around are constantly shitting on guys who sleep who around. Who sleep around too much. Of course. Yeah. It's a common thing. It's like people try to throw people off the case. Like, uh, oh, it's like, yeah, it's like, exactly. It's like that self hatred thing mm-hmm. almost sometimes that, that sort of like, yeah, there's yeah. definitely a lot of that. Mm-hmm. You know, you used to see that about uh, guys who used to steal jokes would sometimes like accuse other people of stealing their jokes to throw them off the case. And other comedians yeah. would be like, is this motherfucker serious? <laughs> like, everybody <laughs> knows you steal everything you do on stage. And Mencia would constantly accuse people of stealing his material because he was the biggest, and everybody would be like, "What the fuck <laughs> is going on here?" But when you think about like the most obvious defense, that's the one. If yeah. I'm getting accused of something, I'll just I'll just accuse other people of the same thing that I'm running up into. I was wondering that too. Like for you, you know, I talked about earlier about like when I re- read Stephen King the second time as an adult as mm-hmm. a writer myself and trying to break it apart do you do you do that with other comedians do you like listen to them the first time and just like fuck that's so good and then the second time you sort of try and look at their just see what they're doing not to not to copy it or steal anything but just see how how are how are they forensically almost putting together these jokes and how are they sort of what i really do is i like to go back and listen to really old stuff to try to 
understand the time period because I think that a lot of old, comedy is a weird thing. Like a lot of old movies, they they still hold up today. Like mm-hmm. if you go back and watch The Hustler with oh, Jackie such Gleason, a good movie. Yeah, yeah, great movie. Yeah, Paul Newman holds up completely today. It's a, still a great movie. But any comedy from 1962, very tough to listen to. Yeah, it changes. Comedy changes so fast. I think mm-hmm. like some like horror or or something like The Hustler. Like the thing is as good now, yeah. the, you know, the Kirk Russell one as, as it was when it was made. But comedy, there's a certain shelf life. It evolves a lot faster, I think. And, and something that was really edgy at one point becomes stale dated, I think, yeah. at some point. That's, that's sort of my feeling about guys like Lenny Bruce, who, in my opinion, is probably the most important comedian ever. And he was the guy who got arrested the most. Mm-hmm. And he was the guy who pushed the boundaries of understanding language and content and what's the intent of what you're trying to say and what are you what, what are we doing when we're suppressing this intent mm-hmm. and he was a brilliant brilliant guy and who went ultimately went mad did because, he really i never yeah. followed him towards the end of his oh yeah he died of a heroin overdose he uh he went mad and he would go on stage and just read transcripts of his legal proceedings i mean it was it was really so really like boring stuff kaufman-esque kind of stuff no 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 no, no like because that. kaufman was doing it ironically like he would stand on stage and play mighty mouse mm-hmm. theme song and go here i come to save the day and he would just freak people out because they expected him to do comedy mm-hmm. and he would just do weird shit yeah but lenny was going nuts and towards the end of his life um, he would go on stage and read directly out of the transcripts and try to explain why the judge was wrong, but there was no humor oh, in it at all. Oh, really? Just more like... He was going crazy. Yeah. And he was doing heroin all the time. I mean, there was a lot going on Yeah, there. yeah. But I will listen to his comedy and try to put myself into this sort of almost innocent mindset of the people that were lis- living in the 1960s listening to this kind of comedy, yeah. trying to wrap my head around what kind of an impact this guy would would have had but i don't necessarily try to deconstruct Hmm. their their comedy comedy is different in a lot of ways than fiction and i think in fiction when you're reading a great novel like you're reading moby dick or something like that it still holds true Mm -hmm. holds the test of time yeah when you 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 read that you can kind of get a feeling for the way the narrative is driven and the way the the use of words shapes the environment that you're imagining and comedy is very different in that it's just um I, I guess I, I certainly did when I was first starting out, but I but I don't really do that anymore. Mm. I when I, if I watch comedy now, I watch it just to enjoy it. Yeah, I try to watch it as a fan. Yeah, yeah, and I I do. I mean, I do the same thing with with reading. Uh, and there's some stuff that you realize this is awesome. This is outside of what I do. I could possibly do anyways. I, mm-hmm. I, I imagine you listen to some comedians, and it's the same. It's like what they're doing is is fabulous, but it's so far afield from the stuff. And it, it allows you actually just to enjoy it totally a, as a fan because yeah. there's no worry about well, this is going to influence me. Uh, in some way that, that, that would be problematical, uh, sure. you know, cause it's just so different, but who's an example like that for you as a writer is just so, so different. Yeah. Um, well, like, yeah, like, like Margaret Atwood, for example, the oh, Canadian no, writer, is. she did like the handmaid's tale was made <laughs> into a movie. Yeah, you don't remember Sounds that. Like vomit. <laughs> oh, uh, like something. If someone had to say, well, that's the problem with me. Sorry, go ahead. Want to yeah. do a week in prison or, <laughs> or read the read Handmaid's all Tale of the Margaret Atwood books? <laughs> oh no! For the read one a week for the rest of your life. I'm like, 
I'll do my week. I'd like rather take the prison I'll term. Take, I'll take my prison time. <laughs> but you don't understand. It's going to enrich you and grow you as a person. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, come on. Not the kind of person I want to grow to be. You know, <laughs> right. if you, yeah. if you take a fucking a pineapple tree and you grow it in the same place where you grow grapes. <laughs> right? It's not the same environment, you fuckhead. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good analogy. <laughs> I, you know, I'm I worry about that too because I'm I am a little bit of a chameleon. So if I start reading too many, say like noir books, mm-hmm. suddenly that becomes or westerns. You know, I think I wanted my next book wants to be sort of like a like a horror western mm. sort of a thing. So first of all, you I need to read a lot of those things just to situate myself. I think in that time and you sort of get the feel for it. But you do worry that you're going to be like. You know, you want don't want to be derivative. Right, I guess that's right, the thing, right. right? And and that and that you know, because in 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 comedy, it's joke stealing, but it's all plagiarism. It's the same thing. And there's 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 some writers who probably get too close to their source material, and then they find out later that like this is so close that it's almost copying what this this other person is, who I really admire. I see why I did it, but fuck, I'm not my own self here. I'm more like just. This person, yeah. That's very common in comedy in the beginning. Yeah, where you're looking for your voice, right? Mm-hmm. Your style. Like eventually I feel it's like a thumbprint and initially your thumbprint is, it's there's nothing on it, but slowly the worlds start developing and you get something that's distinctively your own. Well, but you it comes just, with time. You don't really know what you're doing yet and you want to be like this guy that you admire so you start doing comedy that's similar to this mm-hmm, guy. Mm-hmm. For me, uh, in the beginning, it was Richard Jenny. You know, oh, Richard, Richard, of course, yeah, in the mask, I remember him in the one one of his one movie appearances. Oh, his stand up was so much yeah, better yeah. than his movie stuff. But I remember uh, like being a big admirer of his, and then on stage, like hearing myself going, "Oh my god, I'm like, I'm ripping off his cadence." <laughs> right, right. There's so many guys who they start out like. I mean, this is like I was essentially an open micer. I was like a year into my comedy career, or mm-hmm. somewhere around there, and uh, I realized it. But I see it all the time. There's a lot of like. There's a lot of David Tell clones out there, and there was a few Dane Cook clones yes. for a while, and there's probably some Louis C.K. clones. By now, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just a thing where someone admires a style of comedy, and they start to imitate. I've, I've seen my own act on stage As it, in someone else's mouth. Yeah, it's got to feel like, weird. so weird. Yeah. And you're parsing it out. You're sort of like, that is... Yeah. And it's not it's not necessarily the actual uh, joke that they've taken, but they've taken more your... You know what I mean? You're sort yeah. of the essence of the way that you present the yourself on stage. The way you deliver things and yeah, also yeah. like your subject matter. They'll just twist around your subject matter. And so it's not like your material they're taking, but God damn, it's close. It's just like you, you can see the road that got them there. Yeah. It's only a couple blocks away from the source. <laughs> yeah. And you can't, you can't really claim originality because the, the real problem with originality is there's no such thing. Oh, because fuck. Everybody same in, yeah, and that's, you know, publishers want that. They're like, what, what is, it's like everything's been done already. I hate to you say, you know. You can have unique viewpoints. Yeah. They can be unique. Yeah. But ultimately original boy the whole language is an original what if you're going to write about murder monsters air water the elements i mean all those things have been covered they've been done and we all understand that any description that you have of any of these various aspects is going to resonate with people because they directly have either literary experience in it some film experience in it of an actual real life experience yeah so there is no real truly original thought anymore no but i found i don't know about you with uh with comedy or with some of the other things you've done but one of the biggest leaps i made is recognizing that my own life is um has value 
You know what I mean? There are interesting moments in my life, interesting scenes, things that I've experienced, and you bring them in in the service of a character. It's, right. it's you know, it's it's transported, and you're telling it through through a character's eyes. And I've always felt like there, you don't have to make anything up, right? right. You're just going back and remembering as deeply as possible. And those things are original, even if it's within a story that it itself might have been told a thousand times, the one thing that you can go back and you can stake a claim on is like, this comes from some element of my own life and I know it has to be original. Not, I mean, even that's not original because other human beings have experienced it and that's your hope is that you're mm. actually going to be able to reach into their chest and really sort of have some sort of um, reckoning between you, some sort of like s- synchronicity that you meet maybe hopefully, you know? I think the word t- isn't original the real the real word is derivative mm. and with the real problem that people have is when they're intentionally derivative mm. and that what that does is it stifles creativity yeah because someone like say say if uh someone i, mean, I don't want to give away the story the, of your book the mm-hmm. troop but if someone read your book and decided you know what i'm going to make my own story mm-hmm. about this exact scenario and then they kept going back to your book and they started, you know, adding elements to it with different dialogue. Yeah, yeah. But the same elements and, you know, and here's the fucking guy. Who's, I mean, that's that's gross. And it, it upsets us. When we find out that your originality, what we, what we conceive to be or perceive to be originality, is really just you copying and twisting around the original work of someone else, mm-hmm. it's very upsetting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you feel like that's a get- Why would you get into it in the first place? You know, I, but I know in publishing, say, when the Da Vinci Code came out, you know, publishers were like, we need the next Da Vinci Code. Uh-huh. And there would be, there were a lot of uh, sort of knockoffs of it with the same kind of ideas. And, and, but they were actually, you know, the writers, whether they wanted to write them or not, um, sometimes money, you know, ha- has an influence there. You know, if someone's going to offer you a, a, a nice amount of money to, to write what you know is sort of a, a bit of a knockoff. Um, you know, people people may be in, enticed into sort of doing that. You know, mm-hmm. whether that's why they got into writing in the first place, you have to assume not, you know. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I, I found like there's there's some element of that and there's, there's some element of, um, you know, originality. Publishers sort of don't want originality sometimes. Sometimes they're like, this is a known commodity. This is working really well. We would right. like you to do stuff like like this. You know, yeah, uh, and sometimes they're even scared of originality. Same as like Lenny Bruce. I people who's who are that original, they it's not an easy road to hoe. Whereas if you do sort of do maybe a rip off of a Dane Cook act, uh-huh. I think you might get initially get a better pop than you would if you're really charting sort of really original territory. Depends. It depends on how well you're doing it. If mm-hmm. you're an idiot and you're ripping off someone, like yeah, you might get a little reaction. There's yeah. a few of those guys out there right now. But I think that what we appreciate in someone is we appreciate artistic expression, meaning that we're all influenced by music and movies and literature and things that we've experienced in life. There's influences that are just undeniable. Mm-hmm. But what is your intent when you sit down to create something? Is your intent to express yourself in un- in your own unique language, mm-hmm. your own unique experiences, in your own creativity? Or... Are you just copying shit? Yeah. And when you're just copying shit, that makes us angry. Yeah, of course. There's yeah. like a certain amount of like hate that Nickelback gets. Yes. That I'm not sure why they get that hate, but I think that some of it has to do with the fact that it seems like they concocted it. 
Like they went and put together these songs based on some algorithm. Yeah, that they, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's fair. I don't get it. I don't know why the hate exists, but. Boy, if you want to fucking make an audience laugh, just talk about how <laughs> shitty Nickelback is, and people go, yeah. <laughs> they do suck. But there's certain bands that probably suck equally, yeah. or worse, that take get a free pass. Or suck in a totally different way. Mm-hmm. I think what bothers me Mumford more Mumford and Sons. Yeah. They're, uh, I yeah. said it. I said it. Yeah. Even, I mean, I hate to, to throw these guys under the bus, but Arcade <laughs> Fire a little bit, I don't know you know? The fuck they oh, are. you don't know? Well, they're a Canadian, I'm free. Canadian I'm free. band. And it's like they're, <sighs> you know, it's like if you're being like super original, that's almost in a way it's a fake originality. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like I've I've noticed that as well. Is like you're not really as original as you think you are, but you've convinced other people that you're really original, and that's like a double delusion. Whereas Nickelback is what they are. Well, when someone's affected, what I get about Mumford yes, & Sons, I like, I like a lot of their songs. I think some of their songs are very good, especially their early songs. But now I feel like they're in this groove of doing that certain kind of music, and so they dress a certain kind of way. And I'm like, you're wearing a costume. Mm. You might as well be dressed up as a fucking clown, okay? Because mm. you, you're dressed up like a guy. You look, look like a pioneer or something. Yeah. You're out there with a mason jar in your hand. <laughs> right. You're playing a fucking homemade fiddle. Right. What are you doing, dude? Piano in the middle yeah. of the field. Yeah, what's that wheat field in yeah. the fucking piano what's yeah. going on here you're you're you're, aff- you're this is an affectation and you wonder if they started that way or if they got engineered that, like someone some right. some producer came and said listen we need more wheat fields we you, you guys hey, look need how the these mason guys are jar thing what the fuck is going yeah, on yeah whether they started that way or whether that's what's up the, with those boots the big hoedown boots going on are you are you working in the field and then you took some time <laughs> off to sing or are you a multi-millionaire <laughs> rock star because i get confused with your fucking your goofy beard Fucking stop. stop. What's up with the fake trees behind you, too? That's even more offensive. <laughs> We're down home. We're country. Exactly. We're in a fucking hotel lobby in Beverly Hills doing a photo shoot with makeup on. Fuck yourself. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, you become a, you also become a prisoner to your success. If you get a certain amount of success doing a certain thing, like I was talking about this yesterday, but I, I had a friend who was a fat guy mm. who his agent told him, don't lose weight. You lose weight, you're losing roles. Yeah. Like, it's like you're losing parts if you, if, you, if you lose weight. And like he is just, he was trapped in this thing that he had created, this overweight, bumbling yeah. character. Yeah, exactly. Well, that, and that does seem to be like, I'm sure you've talked about it before, but like it's not as funny. Like Joe Piscopo. Even getting ripped, you know what I mean? You managed to do it, but Joe Piscopo couldn't go from the sort of weedy guy to like the big bulky guy of like dead heat and maintain being as funny as as he was. And the same thing with fat. If you lose the weight, suddenly people are just like, oh, you're not as funny. And why is that? I'm not really sure, but there's the physical comedy of just being a big guy. Yeah, I don't know know what happened with Joe Piscopo, but I've heard the comparisons have me. you? Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, you don't welcome it, I imagine. Well, I yeah. don't give a fuck. Oh, good. It doesn't good. bother. I don't. Yeah. I did. Maybe that's why it didn't work because I didn't give a fuck if I. And plus, you came weights. on the scene. You were already big. Yeah. You, well, it was I never. Any... Any, you never understood as in some other body position. You know, you were always a big guy back in news radio when I first saw you. So. I wasn't as big. I didn't really lift as much weights yeah. back then. I was just kickboxing, but I had been a black belt in martial arts since I was seventeen. So mm-hmm. I had come from this physical background from the beginning. Yeah. Where I, I kind of was really um, self-conscious about it when I first used to do comedy. I would like kind of hide my body a little oh, bit. Oh, really? Yeah, wear like really bulky clothes to sort of hide my shape because I felt like people wouldn't uh, understand. And I had seen guys on stage who were muscular too, and I'd be like, well, that's really That's not going over and as well. It's not smart. 
to like people come don't up in see like that. sort of a ripped up shirt mm-hmm. or whatever, really showing. Yeah, they don't. People don't want to see that. They, yeah. they, they'd rather see you out of shape. But that's kind of funny to have go on stage with a big beer gut, slapping your gut while you're you know telling your punchline. <laughs> that's right. That's kind that's of funny. Right. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that you can't be funny and be fit. It's like we have these ideas that we know what's funny and what's not, but you don't know until you see it. And that's one of the reasons why someone can't really teach you how to be funny. Because you can never teach Mitch Hedberg. Like, you can never have a class in how to be Mitch Hedberg. No. Because it doesn't fit any rules. No. He's his own entity. Exactly. Entirely. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't fit Joey Diaz. There's, there's guys you just you can't fit him into a mold. It doesn't. And then you realize somewhere along the line, if it's funny to you, it's about trying to figure out a way to get inside people's heads and get them to relate. Yeah, and once same they can as relate, fiction. Yeah. yeah, but it has to be funny to you. Mm-hmm. And what's what a lot of bad comedy is, it's not even funny to them. They're just, you, there's, there's a, s- a certain stage of comedy. There's two stages in the beginning. The one, well, stage number one is you just do anything that works. Hmm. You just, you're, they're like, you're, they're, there's like hammers and saws and you're just using tools. Each right. joke is like a tool. Once you get a certain amount of proficiency and confidence and a certain amount of stage time, then you start doing things that you think are funny. Mm-hmm. And then that's the shift. The shift that goes from doing things that you think will work, and then I said, and you look around, please laugh. <laughs> yeah. And they laugh, and you're like, oh, thank God. Phew. And then, two, you get a guy who goes on stage with like a half a grin, and he's like, why is this going on? Because I see that, and I'm like, who the fuck are you talking? <laughs> and the audience starts laughing, yes, because they relate to the way this guy's thinking, because mm-hmm. he actually does see humor in what he's saying. It's an honest vision of humor. Yeah. And those two stages are very distinct, and there's a, a huge difference. And that's the thing about joke thieves and people who are derivative is they never get out of that first stage. Even Everything though as popular just, as they can get. That's why they, there's a lot of guys who started out stealing jokes, and then they stopped. I, I could name names. I will not. Mm. But they stopped stealing, and they started writing original material, and their original material is dog shit. Oh, really? And the reason why is they never really learned how to do comedy. They never really understand the language of comedy because – a big part of comedy has to deal with honesty, both honesty with the environment that you live in and honesty with yourself and how you interface with all the people around you. Mm-hmm. And if you're pretending you're this comedic genius and really you're just a plagiarist, you're fucking, you're dealing with a lot of demons. Yeah. You're dealing with a lot of walls you've built up in your psyche. And those walls just trip you up when you try to write original stuff. I would imagine that's the same way with literature as well. Very much, very much. And I think that second stage uh, is, is right. The first stage is you're sort of... Uh, you're you're almost emulating the people that you love, you know, and the second stage is you want to do something on your own. And that second stage, I think, with you is dealing with the idea that you're confident enough that this joke means a lot to me, whether it's going to go over, I can actually deal with that. Whereas in the first stage, you couldn't possibly deal with a reaction that didn't feed some sort of sense of accomplishment or get them to laugh or that. I think sometimes with with comedians that I've watched, obviously I, I don't I really rarely watch them through the early stages of their career, but they're they're the comfortability there. And it's the same with writers. They're like, if I fail, that's fine. I want to fail doing something really interesting, really original to me, and that really is an expression of what the hell I got into this in the first place for. You know, you good, know? a good example of that is uh, Hunter Thompson in the, the early days used to um, take F, F. Scott Fitzgerald and just retype it. 
Oh yeah. Okay. He would he would retype the Great Gatsby over and over and over again, and the idea was that I think he did it with Hemingway as well. Okay. And the idea was that he was learning the rhythm of great writing, mm-hmm. and that there was in in writing down the great writing of other people, you sort of develop a sense of the rhythm. Yeah, I could see that. And in a way, that's how I got into comedy because I would like see like an HBO special and then I would tell my friends holy shit did you see Sam Kinison last night he had this joke and then I would tell them the joke mm-hmm. and they would laugh at me telling them the joke and I would sort of realize through the rhythm of doing Sam's material you know in his voice mm-hmm. you know and I was married for two fucking years <laughs> oh oh hell would be like club bed and your friends are laughing and you kind of get the rhythm of this this thing which is very similar to what what Hunter yeah. did yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did you ever do that? Did you ever try to like picture yourself writing a great piece that someone else had written and just like go, go over it? I did a lot of um, not quite like that, but similarly, like you'd you'd read a. There are some writers, probably the same as some comedians, whose style seems so easy to imitate. Hmm. Who's but, an example? Well, Ray Carver, the short story writer, the American short story writer, would be an example of a style that you look at and you're like, I could do this. But you can't once you once you really set your mind to like I'll try and write a Carver type story. That's what makes the genius there. I think is that it, it seems easy. It seems that something you can do. But but the genius is not only in the genius of him, but in the genius of his deceptively simple style. So I tried to write say a Carver story, and it was a total nightmare and a failure. Um, you know we have things in in the writing we call them trunk stories. Basically, stories that you write, you throw them in a trunk, you're never going to see them again. And my trunk is full of stories like that. And I imagine your your trunk, similarly, is full of stuff. And these are all things that, like, you need to go through. I mean, I, I, I probably was rejected 200 times at magazines before I finally placed a story. Like, That's I could literally have filled a shopping bag or a pillowcase with rejection slips. When you have an idea for a story, how many of those ideas actually wound up being, wind up being stories that you will turn into a book or a short story? <laughs> well... It's a it's a pretty small percentage uh, in terms of the ones that you know. I always think of it's like uh, you know the way a pearl gets created. You've got like an oyster and a little bit of sand gets in it, and then if enough like nacre whatever goes around it, then I'm like, okay, that's enough. It feels like the characters are strong enough. I've got an idea of the plot and where I want to send these characters. Then you sort of harvest that pearl, and it becomes a short story. It becomes a novel. But there's several that just are imperfect. You can tell just in their conception they're imperfect. I don't have it, you know, it's different, right? I get, see, I would write a story, I'd send it out. If it's not working, you don't really know until you get enough rejections that it's clearly okay. This, this fucking thing ain't working. Do you you guys them? get up on stage. That's the different, like, have you ever, how many times do you tell a joke that you really feel strong about or work on a piece of material before you have to say, this this isn't meeting my expectation of what I thought. Or do you just keep telling it anyway and just say, fuck it, this well, is... It depends. Depends on how much I really enjoy it. There's certain ones that just fucking never work and I do them just for me. <laughs> there's certain ones that I write and I go, I know this has got something, but I can't figure out what it is. Mm. And then there's certain there's certain bits that as I write them, they come out in fully finished form. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant when that happens. I got one of my favorite yeah. bits that I'm doing right now that is in the moment... I wrote it on a plane... And I wrote it, it's like a 10-minute piece. And I wrote it in its full form on a plane. And I did it on stage that Monday. And it just destroyed. It really? was It was like, it was done. Like, from the wow. moment it came out. It mm-hmm. came out in, jo- and it was, 
it resonated with me and I was so angry when I wrote it and it was so it was the it was about a certain particular group of people that are so incredibly hypocritical and ridiculous mm. that it was do in I'd caught someone lying about something and it, it was in this group of people and I was like I have had enough of this and I just went on came a screed. out <laughs> yeah. it came out like as a chunk it was done then there's other bits like I know there's something there but I don't know what it is yeah and sometimes they those bits will last for years, and I'll throw them in like every third or fourth set when I'm killing in the middle. I'll throw it in there, and then I'll just the audience will be like, "What the fuck is that?" And I'm like, "All right, you've gotta it's gotta die." <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's like you feel the energy of the room, and maybe I can slip yeah. this in, and it's I'd say I mean, with me too, I think it's a matter of I've had some stories that constantly got rejected, and then you you I think you get a bit of a name for yourself, and then those will find acceptance mm. because they're like, okay, well he's done this and this and this but they, but I find to me like speed is something like I wrote the troop probably in about six weeks wow. which is the fastest I've ever written anything but it was fun you know I'd come out of wherever the room where I write and my wife would be like you look energized you don't look like all bedraggled and haggard like you do when you stumble out after working on your other books like a vampire's been sucking your blood out for eight hours um and I'm like that's sort of what has told me that I hope I am able to write a lot more books in the horror genre because I just enjoy the writing of it it's more fun to me it's more it comes it like that and I mean the reason I think that came to you so fast first of all because you're passionate about it but second of all because you've been working at it a long time and when those things come you know how to deal with them and yeah. I think now I know better okay if the idea comes to me and it's I'm, I'm ready to make make hay with it well I think you should really write a lot more horror man but just because of what you said and because of the book being really fun I, I, I love that that genre and I love when uh, a book like that comes out and so you saying that like this is something that like thrilled you and energized you as you write I really hope you keep doing that man uh, yeah now oh, I appreciate it thank you and I, I we're, we're sort of in between contracts right now so I don't know I might be you know, selling oranges on the side of the freeway for all that I know when, when, when I next, when I next see you, I see you come Can't to Massey just... Hall, right? I will have to come out. I saw you were at Massey Hall once yeah. in Toronto. Yeah. I've been a couple yeah. times in yeah, the Sony Center go, recently. Go and check that out. But yeah. uh, anyways, we're, we're sort of in that weird space where I, I don't really know what's going to happen exactly. So, so hopefully I'll have good news. Uh, Listen, man, you could self-publish. This is a new era. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, there is a lot more of that going on, and some huge successful people doing it that way. Unbelievable success people have had, unknowns that have put out something just through word of mouth, yeah, through yeah. Amazon and yeah. what have you, yeah. eBooks. It's incredible. And isn't there are it? gaps in publishers who who you wonder. Like I read this book, Wool, by a writer called Hugh Howie. And it's a sort of sci-fi, really, really damn good. And you're, and you know, you find out his history as he's been rejected by X number of publishers, and you're like, how did that happen? Mm. You know what I mean? But it does, it does happen, and and it's great that there's that opportunity now. That like, okay, well, listen, that that's fine. I get it. You guys have whatever agenda that you're pursuing. This is what I want to write, and I I have a way to get it out to my my hopefully readership and build it that way. Now, is this mo is this book the troop? Is it out now? Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it is. is. When did yeah. it come out? Because uh, I got out, a pre, uh, pre yeah, you got an copy. arc of it. Yeah, it came out a couple months ago. Yeah, there it is. There's a new cover too. They they ah. totally changed the cover. Why they change the cover? It uh, looks darker. It's just something that they do in publishing from time to time. I'm I'm not sure why either, but yeah, they made a big, a big change of it. So now it's just an isolated guy on a hilltop or something. Well, I got the best one. I like that one's. I like that one too. With the <laughs> that's the uh, the UK cover looks that way. Oh, does it? Yeah, with the 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 birds and the lightning flashes. Fucking I, I like America. it too. Yeah. God damn it, America! <laughs> um, I like the American cover, but yeah, it's totally totally different for sure. Have you started writing a new one? 
Yeah, the the follow-up is we did do that one for sure. It's called The Deep, so it takes I'm I love undersea stuff. Uh-huh. And like I love like the the ocean. So it takes place at the bottom of the Mariana. You know when uh James Cameron went down in that mm-hmm. so eight miles below the surface. What a crazy fuck he is. Huh? I know, he's a nut. He's he out is of his a mind. Nut. He is out of his mind. He's got billions of dollars. Canadian too. Gets yeah. to the bottom of the ocean <laughs> in a fucking boat. <laughs> yeah, and just you know picks up. What there's nothing down there either. You Isn't know, he like the first guy to ever do that yeah, too? He is. He is. And I don't know if you. I don't know about you. Like claustrophobia is one thing that I'm not good in tight spaces. And if you saw what he went down in, it was basically like he had you know metal down this side to this side. He basically went down in a coffin. Yeah, I don't have a problem with tight spaces. I do have a problem with tight spaces at the bottom of the fucking ocean, though. <laughs> How many miles deep is that? Well, Challenger Deep is is below the Marianas Trench, so that's eight miles. And the pressure oh. is something like seven jumbo jets per, like, pressing down on you per square foot. So, yeah. it's it's not, I feel like that. See, I don't know about you. What are you scared of? That's oh, interesting. Are you? Yeah, like heights, no. animals. Well, a lot, with, a lot of his animals. I find with a kid now, I'm afraid of shit happening to my my son oh, or course, something. That's sure. a new thing. But that's the Mary. Look at this image that Jamie just pulled. There up. it is. Jesus yeah, fucking Christ. So there's M- Mount Everest. That's the height of Mount Everest compared to the deep the deepness of Challenger oh Deep. Oh my god. So yeah, that's insane. It is eight miles eight down. Eight miles down. That's the deepest part of the ocean that we're aware of. Is that what it is? That we're aware of. Yep. There yeah. might be a spot somewhere that they haven't. Oh, there could yet. very well be. Yeah, exactly. But um, that's the yeah. deepest known depth. Damn, so. that's deep. Yeah, <laughs> that is so ridiculous. But I figured, okay, well, I don't like tight spaces. I don't like that pressure. I don't like the dark. Like down there, darkness is. I mean, I don't think it's like the darkness between the stars. It's that dark. It's probably a darkness that I don't know if I've ever grappled with. So, yeah, for a horror book, it sort of has a lot of potential of things that scare the shit out of me, and that's sort of where I got to start with. Is it like a monster book? No, not, no. It's, uh... Ghosts? It's sort it's sort, it's sort of... They're, they're billing it as sort of like the abyss meets the shining. So there is kind of that, that you know, the, the shining being like... Oh, it's almost like a haunted... They've set up a research station down oh. there, and it's another crew going down to figure out what the hell happened to the crew beforehand. Ooh, I like it already. Yeah, yeah. So, so how deep are you in? I'm done. Oh, it's all done. When it's do all I get done. It? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I will make sure you get a priority uh, when the art comes out. I'll, I'll get one shipped. When do you to think you guys. it'll be done? Like, well, released. I don't know. I do feel they... like they probably are going to do a few soon. They're put. They're they're put. They're it's every, it's the year after, so basically it's January of of next year. But you'll but, the arcs will be out, you know. But do they when you do something like that? Like, do you bring it to the publisher and the publisher gives notes? Yes. Yeah. Um, basically, you. I got a two book contract, so I had already written the troop, gave it to my agent. My agent sent it into the publisher. They accepted. It. They say, well, we want another book too. What's your idea? I said, mm-hmm. well, it's something something to do with down in the ocean. They said, good, sold. So you write that one. And then you just send it to your editor, and, and he, in this case, yeah, gave me all sorts of notes. And, uh, you know, you work on that, and you go back and forth, and then eventually at some point we say, we're fucking sick of this. Are we done? Yes, we're done. So That's interesting. Now, who's qualified to give you notes like that? Like, how do, how do you distinguish whether or not someone's qualified to give you notes, and do you often disagree with their notes? Yes, because you wouldn't, ha- I guess you wouldn't have that, really. I mean, you might have no. trusted people that you would deal with and uh, say, well, what do you think of this bit, you know, I don't even do that. No, no. No, the audience does it. Ah, that's right. They're the, they're the most serious arbiter of things. Yeah, they're well, the grand I, judge. I do myself, because the beautiful thing about material is that you get to listen to it. Like mm-hmm. on my iPhone or uh, my um, my Note, my Galaxy Note 3 has 
I've have it for like maybe four or five months, mm-hmm. and it might have 150 sets on it. Oh wow! Yeah, and I can listen to all those sets, and then sort of the audience yeah. reaction and gauge yeah. how it's working. So that's yeah, that's a similar idea to to it to an editor. I mean, an editor relationship with a writer is pretty. Pretty important, obviously, mm-hmm. because the one thing is you can't go snatch your book off the shelves once it's there. It's there. Yeah. You got to live with how it is. So you got to work as hard as you can in this stage to make it as, I mean, it's never going to be perfect. It, there's going to be things about it that you'll look at five years later and just go, why did I do that? But each book, I think each book, probably just like each, maybe one of your comedy CDs is an expression of that time in your life too. And you got to let it be that. Well, there is that, well, you know, out of the 150 sets, maybe a hundred of them are from like a year ago mm. that I've got stored. Like I take the MP3s and I save them and then maybe 50 of them or so are over the last four or five months. Okay. And then what I'll do is never listen to the old ones, but always think that I'm going to like a pack rat, <laughs> like a hold on <laughs> right, to them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the most recent ones are the really important ones. Like uh, on this phone, this is a new phone. It only has Santa Barbara. It only mm. has Friday night show in Santa Barbara. Okay. That's it. But eventually, you know, over the course of a few months, it'll have again. Like a Wednesday night, I'm at the Ice House. I'll have that set on it. Mm. I'll listen to that Thursday, and I'll break out the notebook, and I'll listen to it with the headphones on. And then my next set, I'll add the notes, and then I'll try to yeah. figure out what I did differently, mm-hmm. and then it'll grow. But the beautiful thing about comedy is it has built-in editors and it's the yes. audience. The and audience it also, you can, you can, there's no sense of it being on a shelf. You, it, yeah. it evolves as you, as you, you know, you work the act over and you work the act over and it, and it sort of becomes, and we do that as much as we can. You know, that book probably went through seven or eight edits, but at some point you got to just say, well, that's it. We're on a schedule. You, you can over edit it too. You can sort of rip sort of the rawness and I'm sure you can probably do that in, in a comedy act as well. You can rip some of the stuff that is really most important and most the raw. If you take the rawness out of the rough edges and you make it sort of smooth it over and you listen to too many editors, then you can't please everybody. I think that's another thing too. I've recognized. Do you lose it yourself? Like you lose your vision of what, what is good and what's bad because I know as a comic, Mm. you certainly can. Yeah. You lose, you listen to a joke so many times you just like, it gets, it means like it's just a bunch of gobbledygook to you. Totally. Yeah, totally. And that's, I guess that's a danger that we both face in our separate, you know, but very close, closely related kind of careers. Um, so it's about listening to the right. And ultimately it's like listening because especially with horror, you have someone, you know, I've had plenty of emails and I know you have too. Like what, what kind of a person are you? What kind of an awful creature? What sort of primordial swamp pit did you crawl out of to, you know, uh, become who you are? Ideas. Yeah. Do people yeah. get mad at you for uh, your ideas? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, you know, um, I'm not nearly, I mean, I'm not nearly in the public eye, say, as you are. I wouldn't have to face that level of scrutiny, but certainly in my small way. Yeah, of course. Uh, I can make a tweet. Just a joke. Oh, and, and people, people will be write bombarding blogs you. about oh, it. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Deep, long <laughs> blogs. Searching and. Trying to find psychological <laughs> cracks in your armor. It's, yeah. It's just, I wrote something. I thought it was funny. Go fuck yeah, yourself. Yeah, you didn't think about it for more than like, you yeah. know what I mean? But at the same point, also, you don't recant and be like, oh, well, geez, I better change things oh. because. I yeah. wrote, um, just, I, I watched this woman. She was on a date. And she was talking about how much she hates children. Mm. And I, I wrote on Twitter that I view women who don't like kids the same way I view dogs that like to eat their own shit. <laughs> 
And uh, obviously that's going to get a reaction. It leaves Joe. a lot of room for yeah. interpretation. Yeah. But this guy wrote a whole blog about all, that I only view women as, you know, being there to have children. Mm-hmm. I'm like, where are you fucking getting this, man? <laughs> I fucked up. I should have said hate instead of don't like. Yeah. I was trying to be nice. <laughs> right. You should have been more <laughs> definitive. It was like, it was just based on one particular, and just this weird thing that I, women who don't like kids, like, oh, get that kid away. There's something gross about them. Mm-hmm. I just, it's a weird thing. I, I find it very, uh, not just distasteful. It's a weird way. Like, it's it's disturbing. It repels me. Mm. I, I when people like, especially for whatever reason, women hate. Well, I've men too now that I have kids. I see a, a man who doesn't like kids who hates kids. Mm-hmm. And you think about all the abuse that some children suffer mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times because of people yeah, like yeah. that that hate kids. It becomes very uh, disturbing to you. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you have kids of your own. I'm, t- I'm totally fine with, like, I have friends who just don't want to have kids. That's a different thing entirely. Oh, totally They're different. just like, we, we want to be able to travel. I encourage and, that. I mean, yeah, so Nothing do I. I it, love man. my son, and I know you love your kids too, but, um, it, you know, there's some points where me and my wife look at each other where, you know, I mean, I don't know if you had good sleepers, but me, is, like, our kid's a toddler now, and he still doesn't sleep well. But, man, there were times, like, 4 o'clock in the morning when he hadn't slept, and I feel like I was just, like, there was some hellish fourth dimension that had opened mm-hmm. up that I was staring straight into. And I just think, I think, but then that's part of the rites of passage of, of you, of you being a parent. But, but if there's someone said, I want anything to do with that, I'm like, I don't, I don't blame you, man. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Take yeah, a pass you, on this one. Uh, we definitely went through periods where you didn't sleep, but I don't, I just don't think there's anything cool about shaming people that don't want to have children. No, no. And there's, there's people that feel like, that if you if they have children, you know, there's something special above and beyond a person who totally. doesn't have children, like you're never gonna get it. Yes. You didn't even grow up. Yeah, there's that belittling children. side of it, like, yeah. oh, you really couldn't possibly understand what, what we're talking about here. So it's like, oh please. This guy said this to me once. This guy who was a uh, just a crazy man. <laughs> he was a fascinating dude. But he had kids. They were all grown, and uh, one of them had been in and out of jail. The other one smoked crack, mm. and uh, he was mocking this guy who was this musician friend of mine who was in his 50s. And he's like, I feel bad for him. He's never had children. I said, why do you feel bad for him? He goes, because he never figured out what life is all about. Life's oh. all about procreating. I'm like, you made criminals. <laughs> one, one of your kids is in and out of jail. The other one smokes crack. You have criminals. You have yeah. two criminals. Your sons are fucking dangerous. They are in the yeah. room. I leave. They haven't contributed anything to the forwarding of, of, of our, our species. But They've, in his uh, mind, he, yeah, sure. he was better. He was better because... He shot a live round to a woman <laughs> and she shit out a kid. Right. Amazing, isn't it? No. But yeah. there's, there's that holier-than-thou moral yeah. high ground that some people take when they have children. I d- you can contribute an amazing amount to society yes. without ever having a child. I think just as much. It's mm-hmm. a different sort of contribution. There's nothing wrong with it. And I, I have a lot of friends that don't ever want to have kids, mm-hmm. and they're great people, and I love them dearly. And they love my kids. Yeah, they love your, you know what I mean? They love kids. That, I think that's your thing. It's like people who just, I, I hate kids. I yeah. hate the idea of kids. I don't like seeing them on airplanes. I don't, don't yeah. like them in my airspace in any way, shape, or form. Those First of all, it's creeps. like, go live under a rock yeah. because I'm not, not taking my kid out into the sunlight because you're don't like them nearby. Well, are you a person? Do you like people? Yeah. yeah. Well, what do you, how do you think they came from? They come yeah, from that... seeds, you fuck? <laughs> Somebody make them They just sort garden? of pop into existence as, you know, 18-year-olds or something? Yeah. I just, for whatever reason, I, I just think that there's some people out there that 
can't make that connection that like, oh, it's a baby and a baby becomes an adult. Mm. I certainly get it a lot more now that I've had kids. Like, I like babies. Like, I see babies, I, I think they're cute. When I used to see babies before, I had kids. I was like, oh, that fucking thing's going to start screaming. i got to get <laughs> yeah, out of here. Yeah. But I never hated them. No, no, exactly. Yeah. People that do hate them, I find them very disturbing. And uh, you've actually had people, I, I'm wondering if I've ever run into someone who, like, basically has said, point blank, I hate kids. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. There was a girl I dated who used to say that. Just I, I hate I hate kids. I can't I hate stand kids. them. I don't they... like to be around them. They 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 always want too much attention. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, I didn't date her for long. Yeah, sure. But it, she was she was angry about a lot of shit. I think her parents were alcoholics too. Uh, I think it might have been a little bit of that. She just, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Who what... does know? Yeah, but I but I've I've ne- I've never heard it. But I've I've had people who are pretty close to intolerant on that level as well. You know, um, and. Uh, and I don't, I don't get it either. And I certainly, before I had kids, yeah, I'm more comfortable with them now. And mm-hmm. I'm more, I'm more like sympathetic towards other people who are struggling with their kid out in public. I'm like, oh, fuck it. Well, don't sucks. you find too that as you're more comfortable just as a human being in life, yeah. you have some success under your belt. You're not, I mean, even though there's no ultimate comfort because look, we're finite creatures on a finite planet yes. and a finite solar system. Yes. And all. We, we, if you don't live in the moment, you're a fool because there, there really is no tomorrow. Or yeah, our crumbling edifice is, you know, it's only as good as it is yeah. today and it's not going to be as good tomorrow as it was today. So Apollo Creed in Rocky two nailed it or three, three, four, which one was, there is no tomorrow. Hmm. I was trying to, I think he's three. gone by three. Mr. T. So, yeah. Yeah. No, he dies in four. Oh, is it four? The Russian okay, knocks the him Russian, out and kills yeah, him. Drago. Remember? Yes, that's in the one. In Rocky okay. Three, he doesn't want to train. He's like, we'll train tomorrow. <laughs> there is no tomorrow. <laughs> there is no tomorrow. <laughs> and he teaches him how to fight like a black guy. Remember yeah, that's that? right. I do yeah, remember that. Yeah, that was yeah. Rocky Three. But he's right. There is no tomorrow. There's now. And now goes on for a long time, but it doesn't go on forever. Yeah, absolutely. The only reason why you think it's tomorrow is because the earth is spinning. Mm-hmm. You can mark it as tomorrow if you really, uh, you're really into that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The winter definitely does come, but there's no tomorrow. There's just, there's just time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. we have a way of measuring it, but it's really ultimately quite fruitless. Yeah, I you know? agree. I agree. But there's something about it where it, it becomes uh, completely overwhelming for some people. It, it, it defines their very existence. You know the passage of time. The yeah. I mean, I I wrote an article for Esquire, and it was about and you would have some knowledge of this, basically because it's it's in MMA is is hormone uh, replacement therapy or testosterone TRT, and um, and there's this there's this study. It's called negligible senescence. So senescence is senescence. What, senescence, great 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 word. Well, hmm. Senescence is is How what we're talking that? about negligible uh, senescence yeah s e n e s c e n c e i think and it's there it is negligible senescence and senescence is is what you're talking about it's like our body's just getting older and and things sort of slowly slowly crumbling and negligible senescence is the study of creatures who don't age the way that that humans do like tortoises that's exactly negligible right negligible senescence that's if right. you look up negligible senescence you see a turtle yeah that's right but look at the life they live it's shit it is quite shit yeah <laughs> wander around <laughs> fucking per- birds well, pick their babies up and fly <laughs> off with them it's perfect for a tortoise the tortoise doesn't know any different I guess but if yeah they did they'd hate it yeah they would probably be committing suicide though, yeah. so they would be cutting their life strings short that way but I think whales certain whales have it seagulls of all creatures Muscles. Muscles. Freshwater pearl mussels live to be 250 years old. And they don't, and they don't show this. That's the thing. It's like a, a five-year-old mussel 
it acts the same as a 200-year-old muscle. How about a quahog, a clam? Do you know how old they get? No. 570 years old is the oldest one they, they found. They can get that old? Yep. That'd be an enormous... Tortoise, 255 years. Lobsters, 100 plus years, assumably. They don't really know. Until they get, yeah. Harvested. How about a hydra? You know what a hydra is? No, it's kind of snake. Biologically immortal. Biologically immortal. Immortal. It's a genus of small, simple freshwater animals that possess radial symmetry. A hydra, they're predatory animals belonging to the phylum. Wow, spell this. Mm. C-N, I don't know why you'd put a C and then an yeah, N together. Yeah, that does not work Did well. you run out of vowels, you <laughs> fuck? C-N-I-D-A-R-I-A. Snidaria. And the class Hydroza. They can be found in most unpolluted freshwater ponds, lakes, and streams in the temperate and tropical regions and can be found gently sweeping... Uh, oh, by gently sweeping a collecting net through weedy areas. They are multicellular organisms, which are usually a few meters long and are best studied with a microscope, but they are immortal. Hmm. That's amazing. What an interesting, yeah, phenomenon. I never would have thought that any Because they're live shit. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, exactly. They're just squiggle around in the weeds. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's the <laughs> that punishment. That would actually sort of be like hell, yeah. yeah. It's like a reconstituted shitty child molesters become hydras in their next life. <laughs> <laughs> they just get swooped yeah, up yeah, by that's right. fucking dirty fish. <laughs> um, Not immortal if a fish eats you. No. <laughs> But that's sort of the idea of TRT is that mm-hmm. the, the, the proponents say that, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to live forever. Of course, that's not the body that we've been gifted by, you know, by, by nature. But, you know, most when you talk to guys uh, and I talk to guys, I use my father as, you know, my dad's 65, now 66. And he's like, I don't want to live forever. Of course, I just want to be able to be to carry groceries up to my mm-hmm. house when I'm 80. I want to have that sort of quality of life for as long as I can. And then when the whole house comes down, let it come down immediately. You know what I mean? Well, that's wishful thinking. It is quite wishful honestly. thinking. Yeah. But you, you certainly can manipulate your hormones to give you uh, a decided advantage over non-manipulated people. And mm. It becomes a real issue in mixed martial arts because... Of course. We, uh, Brendan Schaub, who uh, is on the podcast, The Fighter and the Kid, with my mm-hmm. friend Brian Callen, he's a fighter in the UFC, and he said it best. And he said, what's wrong with TRT when it comes to competitive sports is that there's an advantage of youth and there's an advantage of wisdom. Mm. And wisdom comes with age and with experience and with years and years of study and practice. And that that advantage sort of in some way, there's sort of a point of diminishing returns where it cancels out mm. youth and experience. Yeah. Whether it's at 35 or whether it's at 37, when does the tip back towards youth again? Well, when you start supplementing the hormones with mm. testosterone, it doesn't. And then you get guys like Vitor Belfort of who course. are yeah. 36, 37 years old fucking everybody up because they've got muscles in he's their teeth beast. now yeah, because he's yeah. taking testosterone. But what about like Dan Henderson? See, I feel like that's one where he's like forced to go into like wars with guys who are 15, even 20 years his mm-hmm. his uh younger than him and I feel like you know what I mean, but th- but then, you know, people of the people that I grew up watching as boxers didn't, you know, you just had to keep throwing yourself into that fray and if your body's collapsing around you, that's the choice that you've made. Well, he's uh, not on testosterone anymore. That's Oh, he was. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. They've abolished it. It's no longer allowed in the U.S. No longer allowed. Ah, okay, okay, okay. And most athletic commissions, even worldwide, have ceased the use mm-hmm. of it. Brazil stopped it. 
So it becomes really fucking interesting, especially in Brazil, because in Brazil you can buy steroids in a lot of stores. You can buy them over the counter like you can in Mexico. Oh, okay. You don't have to have prescriptions. I don't know if they've changed that in Brazil. I know they have it in Mexico. In Mexico, people go and buy like fucking Viagra. They go buy Percocets. They go buy all kinds of it's shit. It's the Wild West down there. A for lot sure. in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they just have different regulations when it comes to pharmaceutical drugs mm-hmm. and 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 steroids. Um, but in the UFC, you cannot have testosterone replacement. No one can have it anymore. So it's really interesting also because these people that have been taking it for X amount of years, they've depleted their system. Yeah. They, they've sort of shut their own endogenous production mm-hmm. down. I think there's, there's too many negatives to it. There's too, too many negatives to it as far as for athletic competition. And one of the big ones is I have... Uh, Dr. Mark Gordon, who's a friend of mine, who is an expert on traumatic brain injury. And he okay. says one of the big issues is you have to find out what is it that's causing this depletion of their natural source of testosterone. Is it just old age, mm-hmm. which is one possibility? Yeah. Another possibility is traumatic brain injury. And, and that's like, mm-hmm. cutting their uh, testosterone production. Absolutely. Huh. Well, he scared the fuck out of me, man. His uh, his take on traumatic brain injury is so studied, and you know he's he's been involved in assisting football players and athletes of concussions. Yeah, a lot of them who have had you know really dramatic changes because of head trauma. And the way he describes it is like you never know what it's going to be that does it. It could be you go jet skiing one day. And, you know, just the bouncing on the water and something's wrong in your brain. Mm. And then your body shuts down testosterone, your libido drops. And you're not aware of it. You just feel like... You feel depressed. The bottom dropped out of me here somehow. And you go to the doctor, I'm depressed. They put you on antidepressants. I mean, it's like... And what he's finding is that the pituitary gland is incredibly sensitive to trauma. Hmm. And so, obviously, that when you're dealing with a sport that one of the big goals is to shut the brain down with impacts... You know, with with a a, a strike, yeah. like giving them testosterone so that it negates the effects of brain trauma, sort of like just masks the real issue that's yeah. going on. Yeah. So it's not as simple as their body getting older and they need testosterone to live a, a nice quality of life. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of medication that sort of overrides this issue where you know they're getting they're getting their brain fucked. Yeah. Up. Yeah. So I think. Uh, and I also think there's too many, there's too much possibility of cheating. Yeah, I think there's that too. I mean, I, I interviewed um, what's it, Keith Kaiser? Yes. From, uh, and he said that the, basically said the same thing. It's just not. Um, and, and so you know, of course, my editor wanted me to look at the sports side of a thing, and and I did, and I think there was some really interesting stuff to be to be found on that side of. It. And I come down on on your side too. I mean, just like we've been having combat sport events since mm-hmm. Greek and Roman times. Um, yeah. I mean, you, of course you don't want to, some people would say, well, listen, we also fix MCLs and ACLs and we're able to do great things with medicine. So you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. why not take the advancement, these benefits that we have and if TRT is one of them, but I, but I do think there's, there's the fairness to the sport. But when I, just before I left the hotel, I saw a commercial where it's like an underarm now. You just go in the morning, mm-hmm. you swipe it on, and you head about your day. So, like, just for not sports taken out of it, just generally, um, for my, what I've, the research that I've done, which was just in service of that article, um, you know, I, I wouldn't, I like I more or less said, if my dad wanted to use it, I would be like, listen, if it works, uh, and if you try it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh 
uh, you know, when it makes some benefit to your life, you know, I'd be like, of course, I'd, I'd be all for it. It's really the tip of the iceberg when it comes to manipulating the human body. Oh, it's, yeah. a, it's essentially a low-level form of genetic engineering. Mm-hmm. And what you're going to be able to do, instead of introducing these synthetic hormones into your system, what you're going to be able to do is they're going to have nanobots that repair tissue. They're going to have... Your, your body's ability to recuperate. A lot of people don't understand what, what hormones do and the, the various um, different roles that they, they play in your body, but a hormone doesn't necessarily make you bigger. What makes you bigger is it, it makes you, when you take testosterone, it makes you recover quicker. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways guys can cheat is that they can work harder and they can put in more time because their recovery is shorter. Because they take these these hormones and they can put in these intense, in, insane sessions in the gym mm-hmm. and they'll be fresh as a daisy in the morning. Yeah. Whereas the other person has to sort of will themselves to get up yeah. and through hard work and determination can really put in the, the time and, and get better the traditional way. Yeah. Um, so that that's, that's considered cheating. I and, agree. Yeah. But one day they're going to have fucking mailmen who are on <laughs> these nanobots yeah, or that's right. some form of genetic like the same mailman for 300 years because yeah. he just keeps rejecting. That's another thing I did. There's a guy, Aubrey de Grey. Yes, I know that guy. Oh, you, right, him. okay. So he basically just says that your whole body can be replaced. Slow, like mm-hmm. he says, look at it like a car. Yeah. But I feel like there was some part of me that thought just as a fiction writer, like, I don't know if I'd want to see a 2,000-year-old person. What First would they all, smell like? What would they smell they had like? Like old papery flesh. What if they were hot as fuck? What if they look like Jenna Jameson in their prime, but they smell like Barbara Walters? (laughs) It's like you couldn't get rid of that sensory kind of, uh, would just be too, too weird. Yeah. We're running out of time. That wouldn't be something that you would really have to think about, man. It was, if you get, if we get to a a point where people are immortal, there's going to be that thing where they're like, they, they go, what's, is there a next? Should I just let this die off? And there's going to be people that, do decide to just to just keep going and going, but I feel like you'd lose all your family and friends, and maybe unless weird. they're all unless they're too. all yeah, you're all two thousand year old. You get annoyed with each other for eternity. Yeah, exactly. Listen, man, this is a fascinating conversation. I oh, really well, enjoyed it. Thank you very much. For Let me know me, when Joe, your new really. book comes out. What is it called again? The Deep. The Deep. The Deep. Yeah, yeah. So it's like that movie with Nick Nolte. It is. Yeah. The, the uh-huh. title's been used before, but it's a d- different thing. All well, not entirely, but there's differences. And yeah. uh, when can I get a copy of that? I will make sure. Wait, what do you mean? Time frame. Um, let's say six months at the most. Ah, six oh, months yeah. from now. <laughs> Mark it down. All right, thank you, brother. It was a lot of fun. No, my pleasure. Thank you very much. And Joe. Uh, the book is called The Troop, and uh, his name is not really Nick Cutter. <laughs> his name is Craig Davidson. So if you like Nick Cutter's work, two T's. Why'd you go with two T's? You didn't oh, want to be because uh, my my agent. <laughs> That's the only way. <laughs> Nick Cuter, yeah, that would that would worked in a different way. Yeah, yeah. Is you Nick your your agent came up with Nick Cutter? We both came up with it. He thought mm. like, oh, they need to have like a hard driving kind mm. of like Nick, you know, Nick or Cutter, Bob Slasher. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> That's right. My name's Nick Cutter. <laughs> uh, Nick Cutter. <laughs> Smoke my bros, no filters. I cut them off and I spit them at liberals. <laughs> All right. Thanks, dude. A lot Thank of fun. Thank you very much. Buy man. the book, I appreciate folks. It. Yeah. It's uh, available right now on Amazon.com, but you will yeah, not get Yeah, it's actually on sale cover. now. Do you have an audiobook version? Uh, yeah, an audiobook version as well. Aha. Beautiful. Go get it. 
you fucks. And uh, thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Ting. Go to rogan.ting.com. Uh, get yourself an awesome cell phone and save 25 bucks off of it. Thanks also to 1-800-Flowers.com. Today only, Tuesday, May 6th, you can buy 18 vibrant multicolored roses and get a free gloss vase for $29.99. And for just 10 bucks more, two dozen roses, a glass vase, and a delicious box of chocolates. How can you go wrong? You cannot. Go to 1-800-Flowers.com and enter in J-R-E or call 1-800-Flowers and mention J-R-E. Thanks also to Onnit.com. That's O-N-N-I-T. Use the code word ROGAN and save 10% off any and all supplements. Tomorrow, we'll be back with Tim Kennedy, mixed martial arts superstar and fascinating individual. And uh, then uh, we got we got a lot of podcasts coming up, folks. A lot of good shit. All right, much love. See you soon. Big kiss. Mwah.